We're all over the place today. Wow. <laughs> nice intro. All right, so we'll give us a test and we'll be right back. <laughs> Last time we did the Black Women and the Mutations, right? We're all out of 74 totally. Yes. Okay. All right. Um, yeah, and we did yeah, Barry McKenzie, the family film. And uh, I I have the Count of Monte Cristo highlighted here, but I, I don't know if we discussed it. I don't remember him being in that. Yeah, okay. Wait, let's jump to 75 at this point. All right, so go ahead. If you got something to say about Count of Monte Cristo, I haven't seen that since I was a kid. I do remember it, but okay, Count of Monte Cristo, 1975, uh, t- TV film by ITC Entertainment, who was bringing us beside um, cool Brit shows like Space 1999, mm-hmm. a couple of other things, a lot uh, of things. which was a lot of things, yeah. But that that's you know, they were doing these uh, actually around this time period, 73, 74, 75, this three year period, we were getting. Uh, it was it being imported to the U.S., to U.S. TV stations where these uh, sometimes long three, four-hour TV shows with good casts. Uh, some people pulled from stage uh, movies, wherever. They were like al- almost like everyone remembers, well, people of age, in quotations, Classics Illustrated, which was a great kind of the early precursor to graphic novels. Classics Illustrated covered uh, lots of cool books novelizations, novellas, made them to comic form. Some of them are pretty rough. They're almost like the classical version of creepy <laughs> and eerie. You know, some of that stuff was pretty out there. Anyway, so Count of Monte Cristo was one of these things uh, produced by Lou Grade's ITC Entertainment. Richard Chamberlain stars. This has got a wild cast. It almost makes me want to go back to it, which I, I'm going to admit now I did not refresh for the show, but check this out. we got Richard Chamberlain. As, you know, major dude. And uh, Donald Pleasance, you know, uh, guy we're talking about tonight. Louis Jordan. Tony Curtis. <laughs> Trevor Howard. Taryn Power. Anthony Dawson. No, not Marguerite, but Dawson, who was the actor. I, and the list goes on and on and on. I mean, tremendous. Okay, what the hell was the movie about? It's one very jealous man. Locks his brother up in a dungeon in a tower for years and years and years. So he escapes. And he seeks retribu- retribution. And so it's, it's a very dark, not as dark as Les Miserables. Uh, if anyone's seen the, uh, from three or four years ago, the one highly regarded. And I actually watched this thing with Hugh Jackman, who's a great singer. You know, uh, you know a guy does no wrong. But that movie wanted to make you slice your wrist with a butter knife. <laughs> um, it was rough. It was rough. It was almost like watching, uh, what's that movie, the centipede thing? Oh, jeez. 
all these people in dire straits, and it's the worst of worst, and, and yet, <laughs> it's entertaining because it has songs. Mm. This is a kind of Monte Cristo, thankfully it was not a, a song thing, <laughs> but, you know, the famous novel by Alexander Dumas, um, Chamberlain was writing high at this point, you know, uh, Dr. Kildare in the 60s. He did a couple of canon pictures as an adventure hero. After this, uh, I probably due to this, probably Monarchum Golden, who, who I was just uh, name-checking earlier, probably sort of counted Monte Cristo. Said, oh, he's a he-man. He's a macho guy. I didn't know that Richard Chamberlain was out gay, you know, out, <laughs> out. Yep. He was a gay man who was out at the time, and nobody cared. This was... Uh, Shot in '74 all over Italy, so it looks gorgeous. They wanted to make it a mini series. They wanted to make it like 14 hours. I think at some point in time, River just said, "No, no it's too long." <laughs> so I I haven't seen it in quite some time. So I just wanted to reference it as, as Donald Pleasance is a baron in this film. It's a very strange movie. I mean, Tony Curtis around this time period was doing a lot of odd costume dramas, melodramas, and actioners. And the Manitou. Um, and the Manitou. And um, did we do the Tony Curtis show? We should do one. I get a kick out of Tony Curtis, especially once you get into his later career in the 70s. <laughs> we should do one because, you know, he's a, he's an interesting character as a person because as much maligned as he is for his... Uh, Yonder comes the palace of my father. Yeah, I was going to say as much maligned as he is for... for mannerisms or, or uh, accent. He's done some phenomenal pictures. And, and even some of the ones we laugh at, they're a lot of fun. I just wish I somebody did. would release his Hollywood Babylon. <laughs> Remember, he was like the host of that, and he'd tell these bizarre stories about Larry Storch or whatever in between the, all the yeah. gossip. <laughs> and, and, I, and, I th and I think Tony Curtis also probably got burned because he really wanted to do something different. And, and nobody thought he was capable. And then he does the Boston Strangler, 1968. Yes. And that was, to this day, that is one of the most icy. Uh, I will say that. It's it's one of the most icy, wild performances I've ever seen, uh, depictions of a serial killer. I mean, pretty intense. It reminds me of uh, Hitchcock's Frenzy, less yeah. campy. And, uh, you know, it's Tony Curtis. So you're like, what the hell, really? Okay. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's it's just uh, it's just totally it blows my mind, and he's so good in that. And he's he, and he's he's good in a, quite a few things. Yeah, we should definitely do a Tony Curtis show. Sorry, folks, we we do this sometimes. <laughs> That's it. We, um, we figured out on the fly. But this is why people love our show because they're like, <laughs> well, I'm not a great fan of Donald Pleasance, but I'll listen to this one. And like, hey, they're talking about Tony Curtis now. It's got to be a good show. So <laughs> it's hilarious. We're listening to this other podcast, and they're all Brits, you know. And it's a nice mix because you got one guy that's a Scouse, you know, from up in Liverpool and Birmingham, and you got another one that's more of a North Londoner, and you got another one that's more of a Cockney, and then you got guys with a thick Irish accent. And you know, I just enjoy listening to them for the accents going back and forth. 
But it's not about video games, and they start going off about crap about food or whatever. Well, anyway, today I'm listening to one, and they talk about, you know, a lot of people tell us they don't give a shit about the video games. They don't really care about the food, but they just listen to us because they know that we're basically friends, and we're just kind of hanging out and having a good time. And they just like listening to us for that. And I was like, you know what? That's exactly what all the podcasts that we do are. You know, it's like, well, you know, we get on together. We know each other. You know, we've hung out at each other's houses or whatever the hell, and uh, this is just us, you know being ourselves on air uh, as well as you know whatever else we're covering so you know people who like us love it and people who hate us hey whatever <laughs> go listen to something else yeah you know around this time period or practically for the next year or so Donald Pleasance appeared in odd films in minor roles as opposed to prominent roles I mean you knew it was him they, they were they were not so much supporting roles but they were almost like blazing Feature cameos, if such a thing could be said. Pardon me, folks. Dry mouth. So, what, what film did you want to jump to? Believe it or not, Escape to Witch Mountain, which is a Disney okay. one. Remember in the 70s when Disney was all live-action films for the kids? And some of them were kind of comedies or whatever else, you know, Apple Dumpling Gang or whatever, uh, Hot Lead and Cold Feet, and other ones, you know, Herbie the Love Bug. And other ones got a little darker, like we had mentioned a couple times, when you got later into the 70s and the early 80s, when you start getting things like The Black Hole and uh, Watcher in the Woods and whatever else. Even crap, the one we mentioned in the Elliot Gould show, uh, Devil and Max Devlin. Very dark mm. for Disney. So anyway, this is not that dark, but getting there, which was Escape to Witch Mountain. Two creepy little brats, one of whom is perennial 70s TV guest star Ike Eisenman, are put in an orphanage where they're bullied by some dork who looks like Ralph Malf if he let his fro go wild. When they all get on a bus at one point, the girl warns Pleasance, who just pulled up in a limo, that he's about to get in a bad accident. And of course, within seconds, some construction, like the truck T-bones the limo, of course being Disney, everybody's okay and nobody calls the cops or starts a lawsuit, but nonetheless... This was a really stupid move on the kid's part because Pleasance's boss is grumpy prick Ray Milan in full-on frogs mode, who's a weirdo who blows his fortune on fakirs, astrologers, and witch doctors. Not for any reason, you know, he's not sick, he's not looking to learn magic for himself, he's just a prolific fool. So of course, he has to bring the kids to him. Pleasance pretends he's a long-lost relative or something and takes him from the orphanage. There's a, quote, joke where they bring a cat. What kind of orphanage lets them have a pet? And the doofy fat guy security guard sneezes. I'm allergic to cats, which gives the brats a big laugh. Allergies are hilarious, fuckers. Milan has a Willy Wonka, Michael Jackson Neverland setup for the kids, which leaves modern viewers really nervous about where this may be going, and Milan's real motives for bringing a couple of untraceable kids into his heavily guarded and isolated estate, and he even takes them out riding horses dressed like they're going on a fox hunt or going to play polo. Who wrote this? The kids do weird shit, like telekinetically animate a puppet show for their own entertainment, and of course they're always being peeped on via closed-circuit TV. See what I mean about creepy ulterior motives? Uh, there's a child endangerment, quote, adventure sequence, where despite being locked in, monitored, and on an oceanside mountain crag, they just unlock doors, tame guard dogs, psychically bond with a cat, and get a wild horse to float up atop to ride off the estate. They now wind up hiding in the awesomely crappy Wagoneer motorhome of crusty Eddie Hail Satan Albert, who hates kids, but turns out to be an easy <laughs> mark anyway. All of a sudden, it's like Mentor and Billy from the old Shazam show, and they're on the run from not only Pleasance, but the cops, who they elude by making one's motor 
motorbike drive itself off US-1 during a pullover. Nice kids. After putting this guy's life in danger and sending the entire state's police after him, they ditch Eddie and wander off just far enough to get arrested and spend the night in jail. Of course, they use their psychic powers to escape, somehow reunite with Eddie Albert, have a ridiculous chase sequence with Pleasance in a helicopter, where they send the Wagoneer flying and even flip it upside down just to screw with them, and reunite with their father, who's Uncle Jesse without a beard, Denver Pyle, just in time to find out they're all from outer fucking space and head off in a UFO leaving Eddie out behind to face the electric chair over kidnapping and presumed murder of the now two missing and untraceable kids. You didn't really expect a high-priced attorney and his millionaire boss to face any charges, did you? Thanks, Space Kids. Profoundly stupid, but so much better than the sequel. This is one of the many live-action films I've mentioned that Disney produced during the 70s, before going a bit too far for their uber-conservative audience with stuff like Devil Max Devil, Watcher in the Woods, and the excellent very adult metaphysical sci-fi of the Black Hole, which sent them packing back to safer animated musical territory immediately thereafter. It's strangely watchable, but wrong in so many ways. Yeah, was directed by uh, the guy who worked on Hammer's The Reptile and Plague of the Zombies. Mm-hmm. So in uh, 1975, so it was not even 10 years later, he's working for Disney. You know, what? it makes one think, it makes one think, what kind of audience, you know, Disney's marketing around this time period was so bizarre. Mm-hmm. There were, must be some dark people working here at the time. Because if you take a look at the posters that promoted this movie, caught in a world where they don't belong they have one chance to escape starring eddie albert ray milan whose whose picture is prominent in almost all the posters and donald pleasance this is a family film (laughs) and it's this almost all the ones are magenta or hazy blue and it has three indescript kids they look like teenagers racing from a, a an estate. Yeah, doesn't it remind so, you a little bit of the one for Invasion of the Body Snatchers, the Don Siegel one? Yeah, right. Okay, yeah. So you know what I'm yep. talking about. And it's like, so how are they trying to market this thing? You know, uh, amazingly, it did well for them mm-hmm. and um, Disney. And so made $20 million, which in that time, I guess, a lot of mm-hmm. money. There there was a return to Witch Mountain. And uh, as recent as 2009, there was a uh, another Witch Mountain. But we don't care about it. So, <laughs> but so, uh, yeah. Uh, what do I have to say about it? Ah, I've seen it. I, I just, my brain is not wrapped around which mountain at this time. So I, I think you spoke well of it. <laughs> so there's a bunch of stuff he does in 75 and early 76 that I wasn't really going to cover. The only one that's notable, and I have not seen it for a long time. I understand it's coming out again uh, sometime soon. Journey into Fear. Yeah. Briefly, I Don't Want to Be Born, also known as The Devil Within Her, 1975. Oh, that's uh, right. Yeah. I didn't remember he was in that. <laughs> yeah. Horror Nasty. Horror Nasty film. John Collins. Collins. Ralph Bates. Eileen Atkins. Mainly known for a stage career at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and after Caroline Monroe's in this thing. John Steiner. Everybody knows John Steiner. Mm-hmm. Donald is like fourth bill. He's the physician in this film. So it's an important role, actually. If you've not seen I Don't Want to Be Born, also known as The Devil Within Her, and you're a John Collins fan to boot. I'd recommend it because uh, if you like the bitch and the stud, mm-hmm. those two. Uh, oh, those are great. Joan Collins. Yeah, those those are two Joan Collins films that, well, you'd be surprised. <laughs> I'll put it that way. I don't want to give too much away. This is another one, but this is in that. What are those Italian films? Beyond the Door? I was just thinking Beyond the Door, just like it. And to some extent, oh, there's another one like this, too. Well, Rosemary's the Baby, one with Juliet Mills. But... Rosemary's Baby and the one with Juliet Mills. What was that? Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, but but 
and uh, Juliet Mills and uh, uh, Richard Harrison. <sighs> no, no, Richard uh, from The Haunting. Oh, uh, uh, what's Richard. his name? Like, that's the child was born guy, Richard. Uh... <laughs> Johnson. Yes, there you go, Richard Johnson. Richard Thank Johnson. you. And, uh, Fulci fame. So this is a weird movie. Pleasance is, is the physician who figures into the plot. You know, I, I, I almost don't want to give this movie away because it's so twisted, so weird, it's so bizarre. It's um, very close to being the door. Think, yeah, think possession, think murderous things. I know you want to discuss Journey into Fear, so I'm going to just briefly mention Hearts of the West, a very, very nice film by, uh, directed by Howard Zeeve. One early Jeff Bridges movie, you know, supporting cast, uh, Andy Griffith, Light Danner, Alan Arkin. So right away you're thinking, eh, it's actually a nice film. It uh, takes place in the 30s where the young Jeff Bridges plays an aspiring novelist, you know, in the Zane Grey kind of mm-hmm. mold and wants to go to Hollywood. You know, he, he thinks he can make it big there by writing stories and he starts ending up with such a bizarre group of characters and real life stuff i always liked this film i thought it was sweet you know sometimes there's a movie that hey it's a sweet picture a little dark it has some dark things in it i think that's surprising about this film is that is the uh supporting cast uh which to this day i remember is uh big bust of marie windsor Catwoman of the moon (laughs) sorry (laughs) i had to do that uh herb edelman who was you know, everywhere on television at the time, Richard B. Schultz, Alex Rocco from The Getaway and a couple of other things. Fair David, Dark Shadows and a bunch of mm-hmm. other shit. The supporting cast in this movie is almost almost makes it more than watchable plus. It wind up becoming a cult item because, you know, you're 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 in the mid seventies now, the time how do I put this? The time of uh, political uh, Racial upheaval in this, in, the, in this country is that the speedometer has passed a little bit, but we're still feeling the effects. And so it's a very old school Hollywood movie, but with a lot of dark moments in it. But Donald Pleasance has, has, has a role in here. Hey, probably not one of his more memorable, memorable ones, but certainly you would watching the film say, oh, yeah, that's that guy. You know, Donald Pleasance for time became that guy until probably the next 10 years but uh you want to mention journey no i just uh, wanted to point it out because uh, i haven't seen it since okay. i don't know when <laughs> but uh, it is coming out again so i would be curious to see it again but i'm still shocked yeah. that i missed devil within her uh because you know the, this man's credits are so voluminous that's usually not the kind of film that i would miss and i do have it in my collection so i'm a little down about that one <laughs> glad you mentioned it all right, yeah, yeah. And thanks for mentioning Journey to Fear, which I, I, I have to watch if you think it's coming out again soon. It'd probably be interesting for us all to watch it. I don't remember it. The cast is impressive. you got Sam Waterston, Zero Mostel, Zero, uh, Yvette Mignol, Scott Rollo, Ian McShane, Vincent Price, Shelley Winters, Joseph Wiseman, a.k.a. Dr. No, based on Eric Ambler novel. <sighs> Version of the well-known novel was shot all over Europe, a well-known guest artist. So it looks like the kind of thing that may have been originally thought of for television, but went theatrical and then bombed. But I'm curious about it in either case. Yeah, and with the cast, you would think it was one of those 70s disaster films, and it's not. As I recall, it's more of like a spy-ish film. Uh, So anyway, so jumping up ahead a bit, he goes to Land of the Minotaur, one of my old favorites. 
Also known and sold as the Devil's Men with a little bit of extra nude footage, here Pleasance is the local vicar in a Greek island village. He hangs with former students and hippies to the point where they regularly come to visit and more or less keep him on speed dial, and makes a nuisance of himself with the local gendarme trying to point out a number of disappearances among his youthful pals. Finally, he brings in another old student who's become a private dick and apparently film director, Costas Georgius, who, yes, stars and gets himself laid in his own film, which is probably why it's the last one he ever did. He's not terrible as crusty, narcissistic 70s leads go. Consider him Richard Man in a Suitcase Branson, without the surly attitude and chip on the shoulder, I guess. In the end, it turns out that none other than Peter Cushing and some creepy local girl are running an ancient death cult in the expected shenanigans and chew. Luann Peters, who's in stuff like Pete Walker's Man of Violence and Flesh and Blood show, Hammer's Lust for a Vampire, Twins of Evil and a number of UK favorites like Whodunit, The Professionals, and sitcoms like Robin's Next Mixed Blessings and Faulty Towers takes a female lead here, showing off a lot of leg. One of Pleasance's more likable roles, and he's in quite a bit of the film, which is not the norm for his ove going forward. Yeah, it, it, yeah, he's actually in quite a bit of the film. He's actually very likable. He's he's almost like, you know, he's, he's our nominal hero, aside from the more youthful guy, uh, Presence the director, who was actually the hero. But uh, I think this movie has a uh, sort of schizophrenic-like dislike amongst genre film fans. One of the reasons being that it wasn't all that often in his cinematic career that Peter Cushing would play a prick, mm-hmm. or in this case, a really distasteful role. And, and um, Land of the Minotaur, a.k.a. The Devil's Men, he, he, really, <laughs> he really plays a distasteful character here. Of course, he played... Um, and Star Wars, what the hell was his name? Oh yeah, he was the the lieutenant where he was for Darth Vader. Yeah, he was he was Darth Vader's boss. He was like you know the big cheese. How about in Corruption, yeah. the film he doesn't want to talk about or didn't want to talk about? Well, well, well who would? That's a rough movie. <laughs> That's a rough movie. Or in uh, um, what was it? Frankenstein must be destroyed. The one where he actually has to rape. Uh, oh jeez, who the hell was Veronica it? Carlson. Yes, and they Veronica both hated Carlson. that scene. Yeah, <laughs> uh, hey, you know it's hard. It's rough. I, I, but again. Anyway, so what's the takeaway from Land of the Minotaur? The score is by Brian Eno. Yes. Is it as minimal minimalist as we would hope? No, no it's you know it's orchestral score, but it's a, it's a for those out there on run onto eBay. Yes, Brian Eno, look at that album, <laughs> Land of the Minotaur. It's a strange movie, uh, but yeah, he's he's quite good. He's quite good. And nice to see Donald Pleasance doing like a heroic thingy. So, uh, a couple more things into 76, and he does The Eagle Has Landed. We took this one in both our Michael Caine and Donald Sutherland shows, and here it is again. A Sir Lou Grade Starfucker war film. This one's about a failed German plot to kidnap Churchill. While it seems to be going well in the setup stages, with a small team settling in a British village that he would be passing through, one thing after another goes wrong until it gets to the point where the entire village is being held at gunpoint inside the local church, and IRA recruit Sutherland's run off of the local Colleen, which I believe was Jenny Agater. Once again, Pleasance has a small but important part here, as none other than Heinrich Himmler, who's aware of the plot all along and allows it to take place, but realizes it's probably too insane to actually work. He gets about three scenes where he gets reports. That's about the size of it. Enormous cast, including Robert Duvall, Jenny Agarit, Gene Morris, Treat Williams, and of all people, Larry Hagman. So, if that's your thing, there were a hell of a lot of films like this made in the 70s. It's okay. Yeah, I, I, yeah, we did, we did discuss this more than once. This is, at some point in time, there's a huge influx of money into ITC, and they unleashed upon the world <laughs> a bunch of oddball movies there were there was one with gene hackman another uh, the domino principle remember mm-hmm. and then there was one with terence hill the terence hill and bud spencer movies called march or die they tried to make him a big thing there are there are batch of these pictures out there 
this was one of them. I was like, okay, phenomenal. I would say it's a phenomenal cast. Except the problem is it's about Germans and it's about World War Two. And we're beginning a film like, okay, we don't already like anybody in this picture. <laughs> so, yeah, sorry. And the fucking Lalo Schifrin score got to go. <laughs> I mean, you know, I've heard early Lalo pre-Mission Impossible stuff. And before he got into shtick, he was a really good groover. Yo, his, 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 his music was really interesting. And, yo, fucking Lalo, though. I mean, yo, all right, we know Mission Impossible. We know that theme. But before he got involved with the TV series, and this is way post that. This is 1976, in the middle of the run of the never-ending Mission Impossible TV series. His, his film scores were terrible. <laughs> <laughs> and this is one of them. Uh, is that movie I have a problem with? But we all love Michael Caine. We all like this guy we all like that guy everybody's playing fucking bad guys who do you root for it's like why are we going to the theater honey <laughs> oh you know Donald Pleasance was very interesting in this because he always is he he did you did, did you want to talk about the uncanny uh yeah well not too much because uh, again 1977 in one of the segments of the portmanteau film it's another amicus film we spoke to them in our amicus show i didn't really bother to revisit those but as i recall it's basically all about cats and uh, i believe it's peter cushing uh, visiting ray Milland, who's trying to convince him that cats are evil which is already kind of ridiculous especially the cat lovers like me and you but yeah i didn't hit it again it's, just, it's a, a stupid movie amusing for what it is but stupid i think technically it's not an amicus film although milton sabotsky put it together i think this is one host split hence all the french canadian names in the production yeah it's it's gonna if it worked if it worked it would have been more interesting than not yo peter cushing ray milan in one episode susan penhag halligan who was the thing at one point and another alexandra stewart chloe franks the creepy kid from uh the really good one christopher lee remember the girl with the it was the father, House of Drip Blood. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, Samantha Ager, Pleasance, John Vernon, blustering all over the place. <laughs> so, yeah, this is a French-Canadian anthology film. It did not do well. They had trouble marketing this. It went. It ended up going under a variety of release titles. Nobody knew really what to do with it. And then by the time it did show up anywhere, it was thought of as passe. Uh, he, he turned out much better in Telephone. Uh, actually, one more that you probably would have mm. never thought I would cover. I had to do it for cheese sake. I know. I know where you're going. Oh, Go God. The sort of off-the-cup, borscht Jewish humor film that could never be made nowadays with zealots like Mike Grand Inquisitor Pence and Mad Woman's Eyes Amy Comey Barrett getting pushed into what will now become an ultra-right-wing Supreme Court. John Denver, M.O.R. soft rocker, quote-unquote. What does that term mean, anyway? What the hell is a soft rocker? And surprise ally against the PMRC back in the day, has a crappy job as a supermarket manager and is married to flighty but cute Terry Gar, who ironically is the, quote, religion editor at the LA Times put an exclamation point after that one he gets a typewritten letter telling him his interview with God is granted and out of curiosity he goes to the address where a voice talks to him over an intercom and then through his car radio when he leaves before appealing to him finally in the flesh as little old man George Burns hey crazy say goodnight apparently God wants John to be his prophet to bring religion back to the masses in a time when everyone had more or less walked away from all that shit and was exploring other alternatives except that John himself doesn't believe and everyone just thinks he's crazy he wants to become sort of bemused cause celeb showing up on the Dinah Shore show winding up in court over a 
calling some slick televangelist a phony before it comes to a head with a Miracle on 34th Street courtroom session with God on the witness stand. Then there's a really stupid ending where God says, eh, fuck it, I'm not coming back, after screwing up John's life, costing the guy his job, and leaving him with everyone thinking he's crazy. But what if I need to talk to you, he asks. Tell you what, you talk, I'll listen. Uh, yay? Like the aforementioned Santa Claus movie, it's simultaneously outrageous and Hallmark crowd safe and unutterably stupid with a sort of humor that just doesn't play well nowadays. But that schmaltzy core, ugh, it just bleeds Midwestern family values for its surface irreverence. Pleasance is barely in this thing as a shrink. <laughs> I hate this fucking film. What's your take? <laughs> I hate this fucking film. Uh, yeah, you know... Directed by Carl Reiner, who should know better, <laughs> and written by Larry Gilbert, who definitely should know better, you know, of Mass Train, the TV show, it has an interesting cast. I will put that forward. You know, there was definitely drinking going on. We have Paul <laughs> Serino, Barry Sullivan, already a uh, casualty of too much drink. Jeff Corey, well well known uh, acting teacher and drinker. So there was there was a lot of drinking going on here. I'm assuming for uh, people. Bernard Hughes, William Daniels, a lot of stage people, too. So it was an odd little <sighs> collection of people. I remember Zane Busby was in this. Oh, wow. <laughs> and, and, and people like, who's Zane Busby? Oh, come on, America Fawn, Up in Smoke. <laughs> up in Smoke. Zane Busby is the girl who does the most memorable co-coughing scene in history. <laughs> up in Smoke. If you doubt me, please check it on YouTube. And she was actually kind of hot. I just remember the president chasing after her when she was that crazy punk rocker in America Thon. <laughs> America Thon, yeah. I know. Like, did Lewis say Zane Busby was hot? Yes, Zane. Get, get all When I was a kid, I thought the same thing. <laughs> uh, see? See? That's why we're buddies. Uh, I remember in those spandex. <laughs> Next is where you wanted to go, which is telephone. Uh, it's a re- I'm going to need a telephone. Yeah. <laughs> a rather decent 70s Cold War espionage film, and one of the better films in Charles Bronson's back catalog. We covered this one on our Bronson show, but suffice to say there's a purge of the old guard behind the Iron Curtain. So this one nebbishy desk jockey, of course it's our man Donald, steals an old list of sleeper agents and escapes stateside to set them off one after another. Of course it's fairly pointless in espionage terms because most of the sites they're trained to hit have been decommissioned by now, but nevertheless Russia doesn't want America to know they had this set up and never activated, so they send a good Russian soldier, Charles Bronson, to work with good Russian agent Lee Remick, who's really a double agent for the U.S., to find and handle Pleasance first and get that list back into their hands next. Because of Bronson's natural charm and Remick's undeniable sex appeal, <coughs> uh, they fall in love. So when they kill Pleasance and both sides try to offer the other, the two run off together using the remaining sleep agents on the list as blackmail so that the Russians and the U.S. leave them alone. Yeah, I bet they last long after credits roll, huh? Not bad at all, but Pleasance is barely in the film. And really, Charles Bronson's Russian agent? <laughs> Go ahead. Yeah, well, I mean... Pleasance is barely in the film, but he, he makes a creepily effective nebbish mm-hmm. villain. Kind of like probably how villains really are, nebbishly effective creepy guys. Uh, I think Don Siegel actually made Bronson work harder than Michael Winter ever did because he, I think he pushed him. And, and although you know Bronson doesn't like to be pushed by anybody uh, in terms of directors, I think I think Siegel gave him a little edge and this is, winds up being one of his better earlier films, uh, mid, mid-period films. Interesting script by Sterling Siliphant, Enter the Dragon, a bunch of other things, and Peter Himes, who 
would go on to be a director of decent movies. And an interesting cast. It's not the usual hacks. You know, we, we got Patrick McGee, the, yeah, that guy. <laughs> <laughs> John Carter. And a lot of actors we don't normally see, which I think helps the film. Lee Remick had trouble buying her as a double agent. I thought she was too old for the part. Mm-hmm. And, you know, whatever. One of my tiny daily peers in this, but she's she's fine. I think I think it's not a bad picture at all. It's not a perfect film. It's got its problems, but yeah. I mean, first you have to go into buying that Bronson is a Russian agent who's willing to do the right thing for the world. So yeah, you know, then you have to buy that Lee Remick is sexy. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe she sucked it really good. I don't know. You, could, you, know, you, you Hello. Hello. I have no idea what just happened. The, the computer just shut itself off. The screen went black, and then it went down. Wow. Luckily, it seems to have recorded the whole thing, because uh, it got right up to when you start talking about Lean Ramek, and right then, it just, like, the thing shuts itself off. I don't know what happened. Oh, he said, it's not safe for work. We're going to kill this one. <laughs> <laughs> But, yeah, go ahead. So, uh, what were you saying about her and her uh, abilities? <laughs> it's probably the fun. It was the in the moment thing. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, yeah. Lee Remick, yeah, no, I agree. I think she probably was maybe. I have to be careful with these nowadays, don't you? Uh, <laughs> she was she was an old, older woman, older actress, well respected. I think she was not quite right for the part, although. Charles Bronson eternally looked 60. <laughs> I, I don't know what happened. Uh, I don't know. We're going we're gonna to have to... If there was a thought, we lost it. <laughs> right. yeah. From uh, there, we go to... All right, so he does a couple more things. He was in The Bastard, which was a big TV movie at the time. But the next one I cared about was Night Creature. It's one of my favorite Filipino horrors. This is a quiet cross between an old Dark House siege situation and a Jack London slash Frank Buck Man Against Savage Beast picture. We kind of talked about this one when we mentioned our Filipino films. Pleasance is a big game hunter who gets his men killed during a hunt for a Black Panther, which also ruins his nerve and career, and hence his marriage and his life. Obsessed with the creature and trying to regain his manhood, he puts a bounty out in the leopard and has it brought to a private island that appears to be in Thailand, given all the ruins of Bonnie's temples and statuary. There's rope bridges, bamboo housing, and a curious mansion amidst all the vegetation and cover. And his long-lost daughter, Nancy Kwan of Pearl Queen and the world of Susie Wong infamy. And her friends decide now would be a good time to pay a visit while he's engaged in his own Captain Ahab Moby Dick one last hunt and final showdown. Of course, more than half the guests wind up dead or endangered from this, as Pleasance must brave the rainy season and disadvantageous terrain to beard the creature in its lair. While Presence is of necessity, a bit over the top and changeable of mood, this may actually be his best performance of his career, because it's oddly multifaceted and it turns terrified, brave, hero, villain, loser, winner. It's slow, moody, and grim as it gets, the closest Filipino cinema ever came to getting a Spanish horror feel. I still love this one, and I wouldn't mind spending the rest of my days more or less alone on an island state just like this. Perhaps even hunting some metaphorical dark leopards of my own. I really do like this film. You don't want to go to the Philippines. I was there, man. <laughs> but did it have a place like this? All I've been to nice places, and 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 it's keep this in mind. We, you know, even if you look at travelogue stuff, uh, I, you know, I, I subscribe to the Filipino channel because I like to. The wife, the missus, is not often around. So I don't watch it. And then when she's back, she hardly watches it. But um, I, I, I was there. Man, it's hot. It's humid. Super humid. It's super poor. Yeah, that's the problem. Yeah, I was down south here. I thought I saw poor. 
No. I, I saw pictures, documentaries on Haiti. I thought I saw four. No. I went there. It's indescribable. But there is nice places, like everywhere, I guess. Um, <laughs> so I have to agree with you. He, he does a really good multifaceted performance in a, of all movies, this movie. I never for once bought Nancy Kwan as his daughter. No. Nancy's probably fucking older than Donald at this point. This <laughs> you know, she's Asian. You know, you know. Yeah. They, they Asian look good. Women, they look yeah, good. They, yeah, they age well. <laughs> Did I ever see Nancy Kwan in person? I might have. I don't know. I kept getting her confused with the other one who was actually on stage in the world of Susie Wong. But Nancy Kwan got the, the part in the movie. Who the hell was that? Doesn't matter. Anyway, it's a good film. I agree with you. Wouldn't go that far and say it's his best role, but if you feel that way, sure. Well, it's arguable. It's just he really it's arguable. No, but it's, a range it's of emotions. A, uh, uh, yeah. I, I, well, we both agree it's a film not too many people know about, and you should probably search it out there, folks. Uh, another obscurity he did about a year later was the Michael Schultz film. Are you talking about the lovely Sgt. Peppers? <laughs> Yes, this was hugely promoted. Hugely. Yes. Huge, huge, as Donald Trump would say. <laughs> Hopefully, by the time this airs, he will be dead. But <laughs> that probably won't happen. He'll probably be president again. Oh, my possible. God. I'd like to see him out of office and up for a war tribunal. <laughs> That's where they all belong. We all would. Anyway. Oh, hold on. Somebody's knocking at my door. Seriously. Hold on a second. Can you hear me knocking? Who's that knocking at my door? Yes, that was, it was a neighbor... Borrowing my letter. You're not getting, but you can't come in. <laughs> uh, I borrowed my letter last week. We were doing some weird kinky stuff there. You know? <laughs> Where so, was I? Oh, Sergeant Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club Band. So, this was hugely, hugely promoted. <laughs> uh, prior to the release, posters everywhere. So, here's the thing. Michael Schultz directed the movie. Who's that guy? He, he was... An African-American film director. A lot of people didn't know this. And uh, the guy was was well-loved. He, he got his start in um, lots of uh, decent TV series. The Rockford Files, Starsky and Hutch, Beretta, blah, blah, blah. His first movie, it looks like, was a film called To Be Young, Gifted, and Black. And, uh, okay, you know, black filmmaker. But uh, he really didn't... Get his thing going, get groove on, let's say, for a while. So he was he was stuck in the TV rut. But, you know, those are decent TV shows. Hell, he even did, just taking a gander here, he did The Spirit that uh, Flash Gordon was in. Remember that? Uh, the Will uh, and uh, Rock and Roll Mom. We all love that one. But uh, <laughs> in terms of black exploitation. He did dabble in that. He did Cooley High, Car yeah, Wash, yeah. Grease Lightning, Which Way Is Up. Hey, you know what? They're all comedies, basically. They're all comedies. Scavenger Hunt, Bustin' Loose. I love Crush Scavenger Hunt. Hunt. <laughs> the Last Dragon. This guy did The Last Dragon. Who is the master? Shown up. <laughs> Yo, people dish that movie, but it's a fun movie. So, <laughs> what the hell is Lewis talking about now? Time action. So, yeah. <laughs> We're happening that's, that's now. Exactly it's actually a fun thing, and I even saw a stage version of that. Shh. Um, with, are you ready? Are you ready? I saw the stage version of The Last Dragon. 
with the star of the last dragon. <laughs> really? <laughs> yes. Off off Broadway, off off. Nice. And it was a musical, buddy. <laughs> See, I just mm-hmm. asked what happened to Time Act. Now you know. <laughs> it was a musical. Wow. So okay, so where the hell is he going with all this shit? Right? Right? So <laughs> <laughs> Okay. So where is Lewis going with all this shit? Alright, so we have I, I don't know, is it PC anymore to say African American or is it just say he's a black filmmaker? I don't care, he's a filmmaker. Happen to be black. Alright, how about that? Is that better? That's better. <laughs> so Robert Stigwood, the hugely coked up fucking megalomaniac who had RSO records, who was managing the Bee Gees and a couple other acts, uh, maybe down the summer, too. Yeah, sounds about right. And uh, RSO, Robert Stigwood Organization, record label. And uh, once he lent some of his artists to the soundtrack of a film that was just being finished called Saturday Night Fever, boom, disco blew up. So... He takes a look around. He's like snorting huge lines like Tony Montana and Scarface. He's like, <laughs> who's going to – I got an idea. I said, what? I think I think I know Frampton's coke, which is true. Frampton was a huge cokehead around this time. Peter Frampton would tell you that in his New Order biography because he'd be stuck with a brat bastard agent named Dee. And um, he was working for Robert Stigwood. And 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 uh, and the Bee Gees were still under Stigwood's umbrella. So Robert Stigwood says, oh, "Yeah, we're gonna make a movie, the Beatles Beatles album, Sgt. Pepper's." So you know, an idea, possible cover. I quite like the Julie Tamar Across the Universe, which takes a bunch of Beatles songs and kind of does weird stuff with it. And the actors sang, but here we have real. Rock and roll guys doing this stuff. And you have to get like a Ken Russell. You have to get a visionary. I'm not saying he wasn't talented enough to do this, but prior to this, Car Wash, working in the Car Wash, was about <laughs> as musical as this guy's career got. So, okay. So I know you'll have lots to say about this film. <laughs> so, so right away, we start out with the Bee Gees and Frampton. Oh, I'm not knocking Frampton. The guy can play guitar. So there's a lot of non-Frampton fans out there. All right, all right, whatever. Fuck you. So, but then the, the then the cast, supporting cast, gets very Ken Russelling. There's a new term, Ken Russellian. We take obscure British sex comedy actor presence, Frankie Howard, as being Mr. Mustard, and the the guy pops up out of nowhere. Paul Nicholas. Who actually worked for Ken Russell in? Boom. He was he was a singer. He was in Jesus Christ Superstar on stage. Uh, the guy was still in Greece like four years ago. He's on the original here. He was in Cats. The guy, you know, the guy works in films, so he's done strange stuff. I know we want to touch him after this one. <laughs> yeah, and not stereo. Sandy Farina played Strawberry Fields. I mean. It, she eventually showed up in the Toxic Avenger movie. This is this is how bad this is like this film is tanking. Aerosmith, Alice Cooper, Earth, Wind and Fire, huge cokehead Billy Preston, uh, George Burns turned up in this. Your favorite again? Not as God, <laughs> but it's Mr. Kite. This movie came out. They promoted with a very elaborate double disc LP set, and the best thing they could pull off the whole soundtrack was Aerosmith's 
come together, which was decent. It became one of the worst films of all time. Huge, huge bomb at the box office. It was one of the uh, come-downs for RSO Records. Donald Pleasance is in this thing. And you're like, <laughs> okay, so where's Donald Pleasance? You can pop up in this thing. He just pops up as a narrative voiceover character and briefly on screen. It's just, it's just, this is an abysmal film. Um, I'm sure they didn't think of it that way when it was being made. Yeah, well, that's just. <laughs> How was it now? That's better. Not much okay. better. Right. Unless I suddenly went deaf in one ear, which is hopefully not. <laughs> uh, it's the kind of year it's been. Do you have anything to say about Sergeant Pepper? Yeah, it's an infamously terrible, low-rent 70s Starfucker project that attempts to make sense out of one of the worst and most overrated albums in the Beatles' discography, but using its especially precious and fake songs as a loose basis for a plot. Putting the then-oddly popular disco group, which all true disco fans even at that time despised and excoriated as counterfeit, the Bee Gees in the title role, Steve Martin, Peter Frampton, George Burns, Alice Cooper, Earth, Wind & Fire, Aerosmith, and today's subject is a big Hollywood mogul who introduces sex and drugs to their Tin Pan Alley, quote, rock and roll. I remember this one being perfectly awful as a kid, and occasional exposure in the years since has hardly disabused me of that notion. Pure shit, and while MGM seems to have made their investment back just... It was a notorious bomb and nearly killed the careers of everyone involved for several years thereafter. So that's all I have to say about that one. I forgot, I forgot Steve Martin was in this, and I forgot Maxwell Sellerhammer or Dr. Yeah, Robert. And I, and I forgot Alice Cooper was in this, too. Having then, never been a huge Alice Cooper fan, although they exist, I would be that kind. <laughs> so I hope my cat didn't chew into one of my cords, but we'll see. Yeah, so there we go with that film. Um... So, next up, I guess, is uh, Power Play. Yes. Uh, biting meditation on South American-style politics of revolution, but done in a quiet British fashion. Rather than a big communist people's uprising and jungle fighting like you might find in one of those crappy corpsmen women in prison films, this was more about internal power politics. The government of Donald Pleasance is sleazy. It's not as corrupt as Trump's, but it's pretty damn seedy. And when their fascistic <laughs> wrongdoings inspire revolutionary weatherman types, they waterboard and torture them. This bothers Army staffer David Hemmings, who we mentioned this one in the David Hemmings show, who finds himself recruited by Space 1999's Barry Morris, which we did a show talking about that, and uh, I think the Avengers, uh, to stage a military coup putting him in power. Unfortunately, not only is Pleasant's hip that something's going down and desperately trying to out the conspirators, but Hemmings' side also has its share of backstabbers with their own agenda, leading to a grim, realistic ending that we've seen play out time and time again in the real world. We talked about this one, like I said, in our David Hemmings show, and I believe he got credited as UK producer, whatever that means. But suffice to say, I always kind of like this one. It's got the feel of one of those Lou Grade pictures, but with a tad of that uh, British 70s cop show grottiness, as if someone grafted the aesthetic of Special Branch or the professionals onto, say, The Eagle Has Landed, which bears a lot more similarities to this film than just sharing Pleasance as a cast member. It's a lot... It's funny, for being an off-the-radar movie, it's it's a lot better than, than people would think. Uh, and and uh, for those who have not seen it, yeah, it's definitely worth checking out. Um, strange pedigree here. You know, it's from Britain, Canada, and South Africa. So the pedigree here is all over the place. But it's got a lot of Aussies in the cast, and I can't find any Australian money, so it must have been hidden. <laughs> <laughs> David Hemming's still looking quite like a human being, isn't this? Before he <laughs> got bloated. <laughs> 
before he got bloated and returned to be kind. It's only three years after D. Brad, but you could see he's still starting to pack it on. Probably realizing the best film he ever made was for an Italian filmmaker. Anyway, <laughs> so uh, two Italian filmmakers. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm saying we're a blow up. <laughs> yes, blow up for two Italian filmmakers. Barry Morris, I quite liked him in this. Peter O'Toole, I, I always like Peter O'Toole, and, and 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 you know Pleasant's Place is creepy, fuck up, diplomatic character. The thing that's interesting about it is that. And I, I watched this for the show is that I don't know whether I've been watching too many films or television shows that are ending with downbeat endings. And after a while, I'm finding myself going, geez, I'll fuck him again. <laughs> I, I am just tired of spending two hours or 16 episodes. And then somebody goes, I'm going to blow my brains out. Or somebody comes up to me and goes, it's the last episode or it's the end of the film. You're dead. I'm like, are you kidding me? Well, because we're living through it for the last four years. Yeah, <laughs> it, it's just, I, I've been seeing this a lot. So this is a film I watched for this show. And, you know, Peter O'Toole is, is our nominal cheering with Hemmings, our you know, nominal hero. And, and it's just anti-hero at this point. And it's just like, it's just so tired of films ending on downbeat roles. It's a good Pleasance film, Bob. It's a late period one. Yeah, so next up, actually, this is where he kind of, it's not a jump the shark moment by any means, but this is where he shifts from being more or less of a least, if not a lead, than a, he had a lot of screen time, you would notice him as a prominent character actor in his films at the very least, to being more of a bit player, a twitchy bit player, and that is Halloween. We discussed it during our John Carpenter show. One of those rare films where the older you get, the more slashes you see, the more you appreciate just how simple, concise, and well-crafted this film really is. Oddly bloodless and hence subject to night unedited airings on television for decades thereafter, the film's opening sequence is so effective, they actually let the whole four or five minute sequence run as one long soundbite on the soundtrack CD. In many ways, I wish they had maintained that desperate rain-swept atmosphere, with Michael being transported from a presumed maximum security facility to the local loony bin, while a curious driver pulls nerve-wracking fragments out of a possibly mad-attending psychologist, who's pleasant, before the patient awakes, kills the driver, rams the fence, and escapes to right some old wrongs. The bulk of the film revolves around gawky Jamie Lee Curtis, about a million miles removed from her hippie chick persona from films like The Fog, or her later sex symbol shtick from films like Perfect or True Lies. She's a high schooler, <laughs> and the uptight good girl, quote-unquote, who's the resident buzzkill among her more wild friends like Rock and Roll High School's PJ Souls, who provides the only TNA in the picture, who winds up also being the final girl and eventually revealed in the series as sister of Michael Myers. Most, if not all, the tropes of the slasher film begin here. The aforementioned final girl who refuses sex and drugs, and therefore survives the conservative judgment with extreme prejudice all their peers suffer the wrath of. The unkillable, even immortal murderer. The banality of said murderer from their lack of supernatural affectations or gothic monsterdom. To their simplicity of dress, lower middle class to blue collar status, and everyday overly common name, Freddy, Jason, Michael, so on. The novelty of the kills, the throwaway genericism, and even the irritating personalities of the victims. The dependence on soundtrack as much as any visuals to deliver action atmosphere and scares. There's plenty of small-town fall atmosphere, with a trip to the local graveyard between the sheriff and Pleasance's Mad Dr. Loomis being a particular highlight, but this one feels a lot shorter than it actually is, and works a lot better than you'd expect. Oh, it's, it's funny. You know, uh, that, uh, we're, we're nearing to Halloween, folks, as we're record, recording the show. We're about six days out from Halloween 2020. And on social media, people, you know, it's the memes, people are posting stuff. Halloween 3, the best Halloween ever, Halloween 1 sucks, blah, 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 blah. Bullshit. <laughs> and, you know, I, I love Halloween 3 with Tom Atkins. Uh, although, 
Carpenter did not direct the sequel, Halloween 2. That's a quite good one. And there's a couple of the other ones that are good. Great stuff, though. This this is, you 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 actually said it so well. There's very little I can add to that. Um, Carpenter had already made Assault on Precinct 13. Talk about edgy film. Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, I just saw that one again um, recently. Uh, that that's such a great movie, and 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 this is an economical, i.e., not exactly low budget, but it's an economically shot film from handheld to steady cam to just everything. It just works. The casting works, and and so who did he who did he get to play this physician, this doctor, this uh, psychiatrist, psychologist who who's been supposedly interviewing this character, Michael Myers, in the uh, in the, uh, the asylum all these years and monitoring him, et cetera, was, was Donald Pleasance, who, who fits this role so well. And, and, and I, I, it's a shame that the way the film was designed, I don't want to say written, I would say the film was designed, he disappears for long periods of time to pop up more manic each time we see him. Mm-hmm. Especially with Charles Cyphers, very another great character actor, another great role he plays the sheriff. Uh, you, you notice the sheriff's name is Lee Brackett, mm-hmm. who was the person who did the first novelization of Star Wars. Ah, uh, I know things like that. <laughs> so anyway, <laughs> I'm not a complete geek, really. Excuse me, I almost choked on my own vomit. So. Uh, <laughs> Boy, Bon Scott, uh, let's see, Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix. Who else? Uh, it was a joke. It was a joke. <laughs> anyway, uh, but anyway, though, I mean, you know, each time we see Pleasance pop up again as Doctor Loomis, he's like he 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 ups the ante. He he actually reaches into that that uh, that uh, heretofore unseen void of Donald Pleasance super anxiety. <laughs> yeah, he just. Amps it up, amps it up. He actually winds up becoming a real cliche. <laughs> well, Not so much no, in this film, but as you go through the series, for sure. As you go through the series, yes. But but in this film, he's our hero. Him and Laurie Strode, Jamie Lee Curtis, are 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 they're co-heroes. Yeah, True. I, I I always watch this film with both of them. Both of them are equally hero. Well, her more so because she has to do deal with this fucking psycho killer you know and 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 but loomis loomis is the guy who actually saves the day pretty much mm-hmm. for now really yeah i see what you say though he he went from this actor and because of this film he became but it also because of halloween because of this movie people you know donald pleasance was known as a face you know and all the films we just described of the last show and this show up to now was this actor who appeared in these films and we're discussing his films all of a sudden because of this one movie, he's suddenly something else. It's entirely changed now. And he's and he will start getting roles keyed into this sphere. Mm-hmm. For for the worse or for the better. So in nineteen seventy eight going into seventy nine he does none of the most T V things. Uh, Centennial was a big miniseries at the time. And then he shows up in something called Gold of the Amazon Women which is a TV movie that I had seen at the time and still enjoy. You know, that last time I saw on Amazon, she was marching in a gay pride parade down Fifth Avenue. 
actual bit of dialogue. <laughs> Back in the 70s, they really knew how to make a TV movie. Usually these were occult-based, like Crowhaven Farm, Don't Be Afraid of the Dark, The Devil's Daughter, all those Dan Curtis ones we talked about in our Dan Curtis in the 70s show. But sometimes they were more adventure, sci-fi, or fantasy-based. This was a cross between an old Doc Savage story and the Italian craze for Campbell films of the era, written by the Adam West Batman scribe Stanley Ralph Ross, of all people, and directed by Mark Lester. Not Richard Lester, who directed all his Beatles movies. Mark Lester, who dumped such classics as Truck Stop Women, Roller Boogie, Class of 1984, yeah. and two that were actually fun, Commando, which we talked about in our Schwarzenegger show, yes. and Showdown in Little Tokyo, which is a great Brandon Lee, Dolph Lundgren, buddy cop kickboxing film. That should be better known than it appears to be. So, back to the Doc Savage connection. They cast Bo Svensson, looking for all the world like the movie Doc Savage himself, Ron Eli, complete with a safari shirt, his khaki pants, and leather boots, which itself is derived from not only the homoerotic James Bomber recovers of the era, where his shirt's always torn, but the original covers from the 40s, which are closer to how he's dressed here. Bo's a member of the New York World Adventurers Club, where he meets up with a nevishy Hispanic reporter and haggard Burroughs fanboy Richard Romanus, who started off in Annie Milligan's The Ghastly Ones of all places, but was ubiquitous as a TV beat player throughout the 70s and 80s. He'd wind up one of the only two people in the circle not killed off by arrows, poisoned drinks, or deadly snakes in the luggage when he's tipped off to a treasure buried deep in the Amazon jungle. Pleasance is a treasure hunter who's allowed himself with a pair of rogue Amazons, but a scene or two aside, he's barely in this until a good hour and change into the running time, where he shoots down and sets fire to the Amazon village, leaving the survivors to join forces against him and his renegades. There's the usual confusion with a local tribe, where the chief tries to marry his fat daughter off. There's a fight, and the guy Svensson beats winds up coming with him as a guy until he gets bit by some poisonous creature or other left behind. Finally, they get to the titular Amazon tribe, which is run this time by Anita Ekberg, as opposed to Ursula Andress, Margaret Newton, or whatever other Euro blonde goddess the producers could come up with. Yes, all the need of, a long way from La Dolce Vita, and by this time rather large and getting on a bit, is keeping random men who pass through the area in Gilligan's Island-style bamboo cages as sex slaves to restrict their tribe, only to be killed off when and if they were no longer useful as sperm banks for the ladies. They even keep an old guy, and this was long before Viagra. I'd actually seen this in its initial broadcast, leaving not only fond memories, but making it the template for all similar films that followed literally decades later, despite many of them actually predating this one. There's more characterization, however cheesy, and even minor characters get their shot at this stuff some degree of personality and likability, or comedy as the case may be, before they either die or get forgotten as the story moves along. It's silly, but it's a lot better than similar fare on Cliffhanger or Fantasy Island, and is in fact a lot more entertaining than many films falling more or less in the same genre. Even the much-beloved Tales of the Gold Monkey doesn't quite have the same vibe as this one does. I liked it way back when, I still like it quite a bit, despite a few minor flaws. Oh, I agree. I, again, another another review I, I can't add much to. It's, it's a lot of fun. It's actually a film that... Uh... Is it on DVD, Blu-ray? Well, it should be. It is, yeah. If, if, if it is, they should remaster the thing, put some more footage in there. Yeah, so about Bo Svensson, you know, he's a fun guy. And, and, and he's he's done a lot of stuff all over the place. And he's, he's played bad guys, played good guys. He's much better when he's playing a, a good guy because it kind of goes against the grain because he's, he's a big guy. And, and, you know, he doesn't move quickly as as most of our big guy heroes does so it's a very it's almost like a naturalism to him um i i quite enjoyed this i always did um yes anita Eckberg, who was our our fantasy poster person next to raquel welch back in the day was getting on a bit but not too much of a bit at this period and where so so now she still looked like uh I guess before she became BBW, uh, she was kind of, <laughs> I would consider her voluptuous in this film, maybe, I don't know, to be kind. It's a fun film. It's a, a good, solid adventure thing with enough twisty stuff that even 
and here, I will add this to what you just said, because I thought what you said we really nailed it. I will add this. This film, done for TV, mm-hmm. is a lot better than some full-out... Uh, theatrical adventure jungle films. Yes, yeah. theatrical adventure jungle films, some featuring a lot more or graphic nudity or a lot more graphic bloodletting or even cannibalism, you know, should we go that far? It works better than a lot of other stuff does. And that being said, they should have realized this works. Why Why don't we do something with this? Mm-hmm. You, know, you know, you mentioned Tales of the Gold Monkey, uh, Stephen Collins, right? Yeah. Bo could have had a career, a couple of seasons at least, doing something like this for TV. True. You know, and, and, and uh, Bo's still out there. I should probably ask him one of these days. I don't know if he's on social media. I don't know. At least I hope he's still out there. <laughs> uh, but Yo, it's it's a thing. Yo, he, he could have had a decent follow-up career doing this kind of thing. Could have been a series. It could have it could have been a mini series. It could have been something that pops up. You know, because do you do you recall there were a couple of things we liked that they weren't as serious, but you would see a movie like once every two or three years. There was something like that on TV. I I I can't think of a good example for now, but they, they did exist. They do exist. There there was like. Like now we have something like Luther and, and other shows like that. But back then there was uh, like the Night Stalker mm-hmm. before they went to not a great idea TV show. They did the Night Stalker and there was like a year or two later they did the Night Strangler. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There there were things like that at that time period. This is a little later, but, you know, for 70s, 80s. I like this. Yes, I agree with you. Next up, he does a film that I didn't really revisit, but I remember it well enough from when I reviewed it for uh, Third Eye. Good luck, Mrs. Wyckoff. Pleasant gets an effective bit part as the personal psychologist of Prissy Ann Haywood, who finds herself punished for loosening up a bit on her prim persona and holding more progressive values than her uber-conservative neighbors in the small town she works at. She's a teacher. Uh, it's a troubling, even very wrong-headed film, and I urge those curious to check out my review over at Third Eye for more details. It's sort of a guess-who-came-to-dinner as lens by Mike Pence. Watchable, but in the sense of not being able to take your eyes off a particularly gruesome car wreck. It's, yeah, like I said, it just goes in a very wrong-headed direction. Yeah, uh, so you know, whenever whenever you see a film based on the novel by William Inge, you know you're in for trouble. <laughs> and, and and Marvin J. Chomsky, and don't laugh, but the guy was a uh, he was a, a hardcore TV guy. You know, he he did just to put it out there, he did Star Trek original series, he did Gunsmoke, Wild Wild West, he did he did Roots. <laughs> He did the Holocaust. He did Inside the Third Reich. Some of his work that I saw was really good. But when he moved over to feature films, he would take the unpleasantness, the the racism, the the sexual uh, tension, the the uh, oh my God, it's you got a big pot full of problems. Mm-hmm. Put it into this picture. Yep. Uh, add that to the bizarro fucking cast, which 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 is all moonlighting TV people, except for Anne Haywood. You know, Anne Haywood, she's another character. I don't want to go too much into Anne Haywood, but we have Donald Pleasance, who barely uh, he's rates hardly in it. it. Yeah. He's hardly in it, but we got characters in this thing. For characters galore. We got Robert Bowen, who, who, who post- Man from Uncle, as problematic as that show was, spent the rest of his life being a dick. 
Yes. You know, like, I will play it thick because I'm Robert Vaughn. <laughs> Earl Holloman, who actually showed promise in his early career, was just completely playing Earl Holloman. Carolyn Jones, who we all remember fondly from the Animus family, mm-hmm. at this point, just anything she turns up in looks like a haggard old sex hound. Ronnie Blakely, very talented actress and singer, uh, worked with Dylan. Uh, later, uh, no, about a, four years earlier, worked with Robin uh, in Nashville, Robert Altman film. Mm-hmm. And she was phenomenal in that. It's really slumming in this. Dorothy Malone. Yeah, we're just actually, we're scraping the cement off the sidewalk at this point. <laughs> it's, it's just it's just a really weird movie, a really bad movie. It actually was so, <laughs> I got to say this, it was so poorly received. Mm-hmm. This showed up in grindhouses, showed up in grindhouses as the second or third build film because people thought if they could sell this as a twisty fuck movie, wow. people would see it. You know, retitled, of course, is like, you know, Mom Fucks the Clan or some bullshit like that. But it was just weird. They put it on after Fight for Your Life or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, you know, you know, one time I went to the Deuce and I, what did I see? What did I see? I saw some Rape or Die. It was an East German heist film. They had a mm, pseudonymously creepy gangbang scene in it before they got back to the heist. So it's actually an adventure film which had sex in the middle, which was kind of weird. And a horror flick I don't remember. And then the other picture looked like something like this. And I'm like, what am I watching? <laughs> yeah, and, and, and then there was another time where there was a Peter Graves black and white film from 1960, 62, that they totally retitled on the deuce. I mean, they were just Anything they can get away with. They want to make money off these pictures that tank for them. Mm-hmm. And this was this was one of them. So next up, 79, he does one of my favorite films of all time. New Shrakula. Lavish rethinking of the Lugosi classic. This one also sources the stage play that the 1931 version drew from, but really ramps things up to lush proportions with some stunning cinematography, set design, and costumery, not to mention emphasizing for one of the few times in all adaptations, the romantic element. Unlike most period pieces, this one never feels grubby and filthy, even with all the madhouse sequences. A definite plus is I always despise that, look, here's the aged prostitute with all her teeth falling out thing everyone loves to go for as soon as period costumes mentioned. It comes in as dramatic, clean, and bombastic as a good European power metal album, but with a menacingly raw sexuality that was off-touch on an earlier efforts like Lugosi or certain Hammer efforts, but never truly emphasized before this one. Langella's Draco is laid back and suave, rarely bearing his ferality, even when challenged by the typically overacting Lawrence Olivier's Donning Van Helsing. It's down to the vampirized ladies to bring that element, and even then, it's primarily all about Victorian repression coming face-to-face with an unbridled female sex drive, rather than any violence that may imply. Kate Nelligan, who never really made another film of note, best you can say she was in that terrible Donald Sutherland vehicle, Eye of the Needle, uh, which he talked about in his show, comes off like Dracula, Prince of Darkness' Barbara Shelley amped up to 11, with even her earliest flirtations with the Count pregnant with innuendo and suggestion. You can tell they're just about two steps away from turning each other's clothes off right then and there, and to see this in the theater at the age that I was at the time certainly made an impression. I always loved this movie, always. And it's one of those perennials that I pull out and revisit on a surprisingly regular basis which actually happened about a week before you had dropped me a line and say, when we got to come back off hiatus? Never disappoints. I love it just as much every time. Alongside Conan and the Black Hole, it's, like I said, one of my all-time favorite major studio pictures, period. What's your take? You obviously feel very different about it. <laughs> mm-hmm. I'm being quiet. I, I always thought Jamie Gillis was a better Dracula in the front <laughs> of the job. 
<laughs> wow. I, I, I really did. Uh, not for the first picture he did. But Even with the, the pissing second. scene when he's pissing on Serena? <laughs> mm-hmm. No, that was the first one. The second one. The second one. And, and, and the, the second one, which was which took place in contemporary times. Uh, the first one was Jackal Sucks, and whatever yeah. the second one was called. Jamie Gillis was, was a character, misunderstood actor, and, and something else to be discussed at some point. We never did a Jamie Gillis show, but how could you? Um, <laughs> so, in addressing this film, I always thought Jamie Gillis was a better Dracula than Frank Langella. I thought Frank Langella was very good, very stagey, but we're, we're talking about a, 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 a property that's stage-bound. You know, they went back for, if I'm incorrect, five or six years, they went back to the original Baldestine and Dean stage play. Hmm. That Lugosi did, right? Am yep. I correct? Exactly. That Lugosi did way back when, and that other people did sans, you know, after Lugosi. Yes, Hamilton Dean, John L. Balderson. So they went back to that. So they, they got Everett Gorey to do the stage sets. Now, I saw this twice. I saw I saw Raul Julia live, mm-hmm. and I saw Valangela live. And so I do know what I'm talking about. And, and, and I remember... Cheesy fucking sets. I'm like, are you kidding me? <laughs> I mean, first of all, it's we're in the library, so they, there's this big drawing of a library of books, and everything. If they didn't sit in the chair, it was like a big, out, oversized drawing of a fireplace. I was like, oh Jesus. <laughs> so, you know, but that's the stage play. That was the stage play. So the movie, right away, I'm not sure where we're going with this because it's directed by John Badham, who English-born surprisingly has so many fucking hits out of the park in this time period it's amazing two years before this he directed saturday night fever which of course got him the direction of dracula right yeah <laughs> yeah you could see it yeah okay uh this is the days of coked up hollywood folks then he does the eight early age drama whose life is it anyway but then he did blue thunder war games short circuit bird on the wire i mean for the next Five or six years, everything this guy did was was gold, you know. And 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 you got it, you got to hand it to him. So why am I not really talking about this? Because there are moments in this film I like. I like when 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 Lantel is crawling up the walls of the castle. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Yep. That's 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 very well done. That's very close to the book. I I liked when they're in the uh, subterranean passage. Mm-hmm. And is it Olivier, Olivier, who suddenly turns to find one of the women in this frightening visage of, of terror? Mm-hmm. Y'all like, wow, that's scary. That's scary. Um, I, it's okay. I, I really want to like it more, no matter how many times I've seen it. It's like, it's okay. <laughs> uh, Kate Nelligan, yes, I agree with you. She was quite good in this, y'all, and, and, and. They tried to make Kate Nelligan a thing for years. You know, she was a stage actress, which is why they pulled her off the, you know, she's probably in one of the stage, many stage incarnations of this. And I said, oh, oh you're, you're going to do the movie. And then, like, you're going back to the theater. <laughs> <laughs> you know, after her abbreviated career as a thing. Uh, Olivier is great in this. Um, Sometimes you remind me of Peter Cushing in those do- uh, Doctor Who films. So a little, a little tag. Same thing's doddering. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. A little. Yeah. 
we we needed we needed somebody who's either older that could play younger or somebody who's younger that could play older like uh oh young peter and Harv dracula or something you know just somebody who had the 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 je ne sais quoi that that the vivance you know you know somebody who had that strength when they needed it Right. And look like Olivier was just like managing to make it to the next scene. Donald Pleasant's quite good as Dr. Seward. Thank God he wasn't doing Franco movies at this point, but he got really painfully close with Puma Man. <laughs> uh, <laughs> <laughs> so you know, next you have... Yeah, that's it, the Puma Man. You had mentioned this when we closed our show, the first part of this last week, and I'm glad that we had the week break because I pulled it out just for this. Wow. <laughs> Pleasance hams it up shamelessly as a comic book baddie in this cheesy, discified Italian superhero film. Not even the sort of amusingly European familia of Valentina, Diabolic, Bloody Pit of Horror, or Super Argo. This one screams American comics, and more specifically, that awful William Katz superhero comedy, The Greatest American Hero, which itself was derived from an even more maudlin, forgotten John Ritter film, which I had the misfortune to see in the theater named Hero at Large. As such, the comedy, intentional or no, is ramped up to nine Bud Spencer and Terrence Hill levels, and Pleasance snoozes his way through, uh, or emotes, depending on what scene it is, of Robert Vaughn snorting lines with Jack Palance's level of insanity. There simply is no way he took this one seriously. And it's really only watchable mystery science style, where the easy targets are easily forecastable, and the yaks at the film's expense just keep on coming. Like the aforementioned Grace American Hero, this guy's a whiny new man type, and baggy dockers and a TV Doctor Strange tunic and cape, who gets tailed by a butt of the Aztec, we're told, who has a one-man cult worshipping, wait for it, a superhero from the stars. He puts a silly belt on and flies around awkwardly while fun keyboard music plays. He's also being chased by a bored Donald Pleasance decked out like a member of Sky or LaBelle in these shiny disco togs. The Aztec is the real hero of the piece, even to the point of infiltrating Pleasance's lair and taking him on solo. The special effects are bargain basement. The leads are annoying. It's just a real stinker. Uh, even if you love stuff like, you know, Fantastic Argo Man or Three Superman vs. Amazons. So you get just how bad this review is. Yeah, I... I, I... I personally found this uh, quite disappointing. What? <laughs> I found this disappointing because Alberto Di Martino, who after he did a small handful of of uh, peplums, actually maybe about about ten of them, he did a couple decent uh, Euro spy things, special mission, special mission, Lady Chaplin, which oh, I yeah. enjoyed. Okay, Connery, which actually that was I, great. I, yeah, I'm a fan of that. His his Jollos, the man with the icy eyes, Crime Boss, a decent, weird uh, Italian crime film. Killers on the phone, Counselor of Crime, the Antichrist, Antichristo. This guy did that. that. Mm-hmm. You know he directed an amazing movie, Holocaust 2000, with Kirk Douglas. That wasn't bad either. Yep. That is pretty damn good. So he makes this piece of shit. <laughs> <laughs> And it was like, yo, I, I, I'm not sure what the story is, that whether they just turned around and said, uh, you have the equivalent of $250. You see quotes all over the internet from the director. When I saw it was a flop, I started asking myself questions. I had made a film I shouldn't have. No shit. <laughs> uh, I, I, I'm not quite sure what that means because 
he made a lot of films he shouldn't have. And if you listen, go all the way back to the very first Third Eye interview with Giovanni Lombardo Radice, you know, John Morgan, and yeah. he has some great stories about Di Martino. He is much despised among the Italian and uh, Hollywood people that work for him. He was a producer. You know, he just said, you know what, fuck it, I'm going to take over and make my own films. I don't need a director. So that's too... Well, yeah, and I was just talking about the, the, the pictures he directed, but his Euro Spice stuff is decent. I will say that. Yeah, no, those were good films he pulled out. Yeah. Yeah. So, after this... So, after this, he does Escape from New York. Yes. We talked about this in a John Carpenter show. Pleasance is a blustery, weak, and panicky kidnapped president captured and taken behind the walls of Fortress New York in this John Carpenter post-apocalyptic classic. One of the best of its kind and highly influential on films like Bronx Warrior, Los Angeles New Crime City 2020, and dozens of other films that drew from both it and the Mad Max films in equal measure throughout the subsequent decades. So we talked this one in depth in our John Carpenter show, but there's so much to love here. Isaac Hayes' Duke of New York, Season Hubley's Fatalist, to get plucky prostitute. Ernest Borgnett's crazy taxi driver. The film is packed with deals with bit players and big name guest stars who make the most of their limited screen time. Great sets, a fantastic sci-fi concept, plenty of action, and Carpenter's usual subversive subtext justify this one's reputation. Honestly, if you haven't seen this one yet, why haven't you? Yeah, if if you haven't seen the original Escape from New York, why haven't you? A, a brilliant piece of filmmaking in terms of economical filmmaking. To this day. I can't figure out how they pulled off a lot of the stuff they did with such a low budget. Even watching the documentary, I'm like, really, you did that? I don't believe it, you know, but you did that. You did that, didn't you? Great cast. I mean, Lee Van Cleef, still still doing it. You know, still 1980, still pulling off that shit. You know, Lee Van Cleef is still doing that thing. Mm-hmm. Ernest Borgnine in a really sweet role, almost like it was made for him. You know, like, Let's write something for this guy. You know, it was, it was very sweet. Uh, Isaac Hayes, big surprise. Uh, Harry Dean Stanton, really nice. Adrian Barbeau, nice. Tom Atkins, nice to see him in this part. I mean, you can go on and on, but Donald Pleasant says President of the United States. <laughs> Experiencing Trump, yeah, I, now I get it. You know, <laughs> I can see that whimpering fuckwad uh-huh. be this character if such a thing ever happened. Yep. True. Back then, uh, I was like, "Come on, no prisons could be like that." You know, now, yeah, okay. Now we believe it. Yeah, we totally believe. It. You know, I, I, I've had conversations because I'm not entirely insane, but maybe a little bit. I said, "You ever seen this movie?" Because I can see this fucking happening. Yeah. I can see this prick bastard, and then they'll have to find somebody, and then nobody's gonna want to do it. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> nobody's gonna want to get them. You know? <laughs> um, a great movie, Kurt Russell, who went from a Disney star yep. to this? Wow. Yep. It's a classic. No way around it. <laughs> so Pleasant stuff, Pleasant, you know, I, I give Pleasant a lot of credit, though, because he, yeah, he goes from this blustering, how do we call it, this blustering political figure to almost becoming a sub. And we get very, yep. very close to some nasty territory, which thankfully Copper doesn't go to. Yeah, but it was close. Yeah. It was close. You know what I'm talking about. Right? I know exactly what you're talking about. Complete that, with the leather gear, the yeah. collar, the whole deal. Yep. Yeah, and then that, that freaky guy that worked for the Duke. Uh-huh. You know, we, you know, it's almost like, what was on the cutting room floor? Uh-huh. Well, where are we going to go with this that we decided not to? You know, it's like, okay, you know, we're getting to a point where it's getting really close. Plus, this is really good. And and, and more so in this, of course, than, than in Halloween. You know, it's his first picture with Carpenter. Mm-hmm. So it's almost like Carpenter says, you know, come here. I, I got this part. I'm thinking of you. I saw you in cul-de-sac here. 
Yeah, I saw you in cold. It side. reaches back to that. That's that's how far of a distance we're talking. I've yeah, seen some yeah. potential in you to really get perverse. Let's do this. <laughs> yeah, let's do this. And I'm sure Donald Pleasant's eyes widen and say, "This is the best fucking part I've had in years." <laughs> Yo, it's a supporting role, but it's the best fucking part I've had in years. Yeah. He's great. He's great. He's terrific. So next up, we get the Monster Club, which is the last of the Amicus-style anthology horrors from producer Milton Sabosky. We discussed this one at length in our Amicus show. Pleasant stars in the worst of the tales here, unfortunately. A stupid, quote, comedy where he and two fellow bowler-headed Thompson and Thompson types, for you Tintin fans, follow Britt Eklund's kid around until they locate and stake his father, who's a vampire. There's dumb comedy music and a, quote, happy ending where Pleasant gets staked by his own men while the vampire lives on. It's terrible. It's embarrassing. If only you were in that creepy-ass Village of Ghouls story which really makes the film. But unfortunately, no, it's really bad. Yeah, the the only thing that's worthy about this film, because a lot of people don't know this, is that the pretty things, yes. the band, play in this film. And, and there's there's no soundtrack featuring pretty things music, by the way, as, as far as I know. And so uh, who are they? It's another story, folks. <laughs> I mean, okay, let's go back to the film. So we have a stellar collection. Ben Surprise, John Carradine, Pleasant, Stewart, Whitman, yeah. Richard Johnson and so forth. So it, it's it's another anthology film way too late. It's when Milton Sabatsky kind of, again, long past the amicus time, tried to do this thing, and it just doesn't work. And our actors are carted out of the retirement home, you know, to, to appear in this. It, it, it's a sad film, actually, I always thought. It's about all I could say. And you? You still there? Nope, they'll leave you hanging. Yeah, you still there? Yeah, sorry, I had to run for a piss break. <laughs> oh, uh, okay. That'll get edited out. Okay. <laughs> so, next up, he actually shows up on Dick Turpin, which is a TV series over in the UK. Third season of a series I only saw some of the first season of. The British children's show starring Man About the House's Richard O'Sullivan as a notorious highwayman who was posthumously reimagined as a sort of folk hero, as if you were more of a Robin Hood figure than it appears to be the truth of the matter. It's not terrible, it's just kind of grotty with a lot of filthy, rotting tooth paupers and lower class milling about and occasionally running against obnoxious rich barons and such as if it were Doctor Who or an Adam and the Ants video without the glamour. Apparently Pleasance was aptly cast given his nerves and crazed performances in many a role as a religious nut job about to get Dick and his men but again I did not see these particular this season so don't know about that one. I'm assuming you don't have anything to say about that. I, I did see that years and years ago on um, one of the many British television sites, channels uh, I, I yeah, I bet that particular show he he appeared on. I, I I can't speak to that, but but I did see it. <laughs> yeah. Not one of my favorites. It's watchable, but you know. So 1981, Halloween 2. He comes back as Dr. Loomis. Amazing Grace, come sit on my face. Don't pass me by. I need your pie. <laughs> Carpenter ostensibly sat out, but as it happens, may actually have been the final director of this sequel, which again sets the tropes of another subgenre of the slasher film, The Hospital Horror, of which this remains by far the best example. This is the one that follows the events of his predecessor very directly, as in a, here's what happened after the credits came up, and it's a lot of chaos right out of the gate. Somebody in a Shatner mask, just like Michael, refuses to respond to cops and Dr. Loomis, and winds up getting hit not only by a car, but nailed by one that for no apparent reason doesn't even try to stop racing down a residential side street at highway speed 
speeds, ramming into a jackknife truck. What the fuck was that doing there? In the middle of the street, pinning the Earthside's Michael between them and exploding in dramatic fashion. Is Michael dead? And if so, what happens for the rest of the film? There's a lot of nonsense with horny orderlies, morgue attendants, and nurses who like to take nude baths and fuck in the boiler room. Uh, put an explanation point there. While Jason stalks the increasingly empty corridors, making his way to Curtis's bedside. Pleasance is still barking mad, but consider this as evil of Frankenstein, his only somewhat heroic turn in the series, possibly the first one. That whole sequence in the hospital, trying to keep Curtis alive while going after Michael, good stuff, and not exactly what you'd expect from this jittery nevish from the first film. Really intense by comparison, I actually prefer this one to the original, and always did, but then hospitals always creep the shit out of me. People refer to this as if it were a bastard stepchild of sorts, a failed attempt to build a series out of this that couldn't even keep his intended director, but honestly, I say that's bullshit. If by any chance you haven't already seen him fallen for this one, give it a shot. I'll bet you love it as much as I do or close. So what's your take? Oh, it was very, very good. This is very, very good. Yeah, probably one of the early, early, earlier, or the precursors to the Halloween, not Halloween, I'm sorry, to trying to agree with you, hospital slasher, uh, <laughs> slasher films. Splasher too. <laughs> Don't bathe me, I'm not ready yet. You know, I was like, oh dear. <laughs> Mr. Jones, it's time for your bath. I'm not ready for bath yet. Halloween <laughs> Splasher Part 4. No, so... Uh, <laughs> you think this is fucking funny? You ever go to visit somebody in the hospital and the, the nurse has a tough time trying to bathe somebody? Oh, my God. <laughs> Where did he go? Uh, anyway, so... <laughs> <laughs> this is what you missed. This is what you missed. So, um, <laughs> sure. sorry, sorry yeah. folks. Anyway, that's good. That's good. Yeah, I should do more. <laughs> anyway, yeah, it's natural. No, this is a very, very good film. All right, you said that. No, but it's true. Why is it true? Because it works. Okay. Now you just, you know, you mentioned a few things. Here's the thing. You watch this movie, you're like, ah, oh, there's no such thing as a hospital, no people. This is bullshit because if you've ever been into Northwest California or high up in New England like Maine or Vermont and you need to go to a local hospital late in the evening, this is what they look like. When it's past eight, nine o'clock, they don't have, it's not like New York City, you know, <laughs> if somebody, you know, well, I don't know right now because of the pandemic, things might have changed. But back in the days, um, and back in the days means 2000s for Northwest California and the 80s and 90s for New England for me. If you had to go to a hospital for a variety of reasons, not, not anything earth shattering, folks, but they were like this movie. You have the attendant physician, a nurse, and if there was no physician, like, we'll try to call him at home and he'll get here. <laughs> um, it's creepy. The, the the setting works. The guy works. The um, the 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 young man. Uh, I I thought he was really good. Lance Guest, who was in Last Starfighter. Mm-hmm. Uh, astonishingly, the guy, uh, whether it was his choice or not, just didn't have this this bigger career. But he was really good in these type of roles. Charles Cyphers is back as the sheriff. Jamie Lee Curtis is back. As, yeah, picks up exactly right after the last film ended. But I agree, yeah, Donald Pleasance really, he just kind of stepped into this one like, okay, let's do something. Come on, Donald, put on your superhero show shoes and, <laughs> and, and you know, let's do what you got to do. That that whole last portion of the film where he just nominally, I'm going to sacrifice myself to save you because this is the only way to kill this guy. But he doesn't have to. 
But it's interesting. Very good film, a very underrated film, because I think the problem with this movie is people don't see it and make assumptions. Yep. So, so year after that, he gets into a bunch of these sort of slasher films. First one being Alone in the Dark. Pleasance is the misguidedly open-minded head of the local sanitarium, where even known maximum security violence-prone patients are given a free run of the place. When the new shrink arrives, and of all red herrings to put in that role, it's crazy Murdoch from the 18th, Dwight Schultz. The patients decide to kill him and his family for, quote, making their favorite shrink, who he replaced, leave. So they take advantage of a local blackout to do just that, and it turns into a weird home invasion with psychos thing, headed by named B-listers like Martin Landau, from our Mission Impossible show, and Jack Palance, who we've run across more than a few times along the way. As slashers go, it's kind of like a Lifetime movie, really. Visiting hours is more thrilling than this, but it's certainly watchable if you just want to see a bunch of folks, some of them name actors, hamming it up with bad lines, pretending to be crackers. This may well fill your bill. It has some eerie moments in it. It's, it's. I mean, I, I guess to either one of us, it's not as great as you would think, but yeah, if, if you want to see some, some decent actors, uh, some of these guys have fallen on hard times before this movie were actually crawling their way back up to better roles and and a lot of them did and, and but if you want to see them do just some bizarre work it, it probably would be in this film it does have some really dark moments so I, I, I will say that so after a few more things 1983 he winds up in Uli Lommel's The Devonsville Terror there was a much better riff on the same material by of all people Bill Rabane The Demons of Ludlow which managed to deliver a lot more atmosphere and Carnival of Souls creepiness to the same basic subject even Mark of the Witch was much better than this which isn't to say that it's horrible or even the best thing Uli Lommel ever did which isn't saying much Pleasance has a gross role here as the local doctor who's apparently rotting from the inside as he has to keep pulling maggots out of his skin Ugh. Three women with an intense spotlight on Lommel's usual subject slash co-star and wife, the lesbian-cropped Susanna Love, move into this Pennsylvania hick town, and since they're single and have newfangled ideas about stuff, all the yokels in power, which include a priest, a sweaty pervert fat guy general store owner, and some dumb MAGA hat sporting teenagers who just want to fuck shit up and get upset and go on a witch hunt, with kidnapping, attempted rape, getting dragged from a car bumper, and getting fed to the dogs part of the menu. Yay? It does bear a certain measure of 70s don't bother to look for America, it's ugly sin and better left unexplored gravitas, and fall in the country atmosphere to it that leaves it occasionally watchable, but it's something of a low bar in horror films of the era, only elevated by its atmospheric feel and the comparative fact that it's the most likable of Lommel's rather sorry filmography. Despite his name, Pleasance is most unpleasant here. Yes, yes the movie's not a favorite of mine. Uh, I barely remember Pleasance from this. Uh, one of the issues I had was Susanna Love. What a name. That's not her real name, of course, but because she was Uli Lamel's, you know, so she she appeared in a couple of his pictures, uh, a lot of them, actually. Boogeyman, Olivia Brainways, Boogeyman 2, Devonsville, blah, 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 blah. And then disappeared off the face of the earth. Started out as 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 in here in Cocaine Cowboys and Blank Generation. Yeah, you can see where this is going, right? <laughs> so she's and she and she's got to be 70 now. By, by looking at her CV. So I, I just never warmed to her. She seemed to be, I don't know, somewhere else. Yeah. She has said, uh, I guess I, 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 if I can say in her defense, she has said she wasn't thrilled working for her husband as a director, you know, as an actress, and he was a director, and for whatever was going on with them uh, in their personal life, maybe he pushed her, you know, to do stuff. I don't know, but I, this is one of the better films that Oli Lamel did. True, but it's not saying much. Yeah, he's made, all his stuff is weird. All his stuff is strange. I know Tim Lucas was a big fan 
in terms of you know taking apart these things like you know because Uli Lamel did uh, work on tenderness of the wolves you know mm. and, and but it's just I don't know I, I just find these rough although you know what I think I do like the boogeyman better really for, okay. the, for what it's worth much better than Frankenstein's great aunt Tilly <laughs> is that up? oh yeah that is coming up next yeah there, there's there's very little to even tell anybody this was a big box VHS rental back in the day when there were video stores and I always saw this big pink purplish box Frankenstein's gradient until what the hell is this and then I looked at it I'm like wow it's got a lot of big busty babes in this you know we had <laughs> Yvonne Fernow June Wilkinson from the stripper Rama days Jaja Gabor who you know it was something and 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 uh, there were a couple other Ladies. But aren't these women you're suggesting all like big, you know, boom women from the 50s? Yes. This is in the 80s? <laughs> yeah, 50, yeah, and this is the 80s, so you're, right away they're, they're, they're too old to play these parts. Um, so the Frankenstein family returns back to the castle. One one of them or more tries to reanimate the monster. This is barely all I can remember. You, you know, who's the director? Myron J. Gold. Yeah, don't even ask. <laughs> uh, the production values actually aren't that bad. So they probably borrowed somebody's big-ass house, and they mm-hmm. just shot economically. Aldo Ray appears as the Burgermeister. Yeah, I'm not going there with that one. <laughs> <laughs> I don't remember much about this film, except that... Neither does Aldo Ray. <laughs> He's drunk. Yeah, I mean, except that I, I'm pretty sure that I I purchased this because this is, there's a lot of chesty girls in here. You know, they were big in the fifties and sixties. Might be fun. And instead, I, they're all covered. By the way, for those like gills that are new, no, I think they're all covered. Holy G. Did, did so, you watch like Chayton's cheerleaders? Like, ooh, that they're Monte Carlo. <laughs> yeah. So anyway. <laughs> People past their prime. We talked about Nina Ecker before. 1985, he does another one for Dario Argento, which is phenomena. Divisive late career Argento picture that some consider his jump the shark moment. I like opera. Do you like Hitchcock? And especially Nona Sono. But I've heard it said many a time, so be warned. Busty teen sex symbol Jennifer Connelly makes her debut here as a weird kid with a psychic connection to insects. Pleasance is the local crippled entomologist with a highly intelligent monkey psychic slash assistant. Because, you know, doesn't every town have one? We covered this one in an Argento show way back. I think it was actually our very first episode. Suffice to say, it's bizarre. With all these extra quirks like psychically manipulable insects and the intelligent monkey who saves the day at the end. And if you're going to ogle Connolly, forget it. She's like 12 in this one. But Argento's his usual mean-spirited self. He's really going after his ex, who's dressed up prim, unlikable, and batshit psycho in turn here. And there's the requisite share of visual flair and grew. The opening sequence where he kills his old daughter, Fiora, is the best part of the film by Miles. So it's still on the good side of Argento's ledger, so far as I'm concerned. But yeah, he starts pushing it at this point. Yeah, uh, yeah, we covered this a long, long time ago, years ago, actually. And visually... It's interesting. It's where Argento also takes a deep leap, no pun intended, into a different kind of cinematography, cinematographical outlook on how to shoot. So we're in the the, the Swiss forest now, or German black forest, the border, the border Mm -hmm. Swiss forest. It's 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 also grim looking, uh, potentially uh, rainy, uh, rain rain threatened wind. And rain and wind, cold, cold, but you know, no ice, no snow, but just it, 
that threat is there. So the film is a grim film. And anyway, look at it. you know. I thought Jennifer Connelly was hot. Now I don't give a shit. She was twelve. She got older <laughs> eventually. <laughs> and she wasn't that busty. You said busty. No, she was healthy. A healthy young teenager. That's because she was too young. Later on, she becomes busty. Uh, whatever. <laughs> she was kind of cute. No. Uh, no. I said she wasn't cute, but she's a kid. Uh, whatever. <laughs> all right. All right. See you. All right. What? what? Yeah. Okay. Uh, anyway, <laughs> the Daria. <clears throat> see, you made me choke. <laughs> the Daria Nicolotti, who's always, I always thought was hot. He, he really, yeah. He, uh, Dario and and then Daria were really they were having some difficulties in this period. And and but she agreed to be in the film, yeah. looking terrible, shot terrible. You know, she filmed a terrible. And then she has this couple of scenes where she just really does not come off too well. I don't want to give too much away. Patrick Bouchard, the French uh, actor, we're kind of hoping he's 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 going to become our nominal hero here, and then he suffers a grim fate. You remember this? And, and mm-hmm. so we're left with Donald Pleasance as as a almost doddering aged scientist who yes has a chimp, um, who saves the day by slashing to death our our villain. As it's a strange movie. You know, one of my major, major problems with this film has always, always been the terrible soundtrack. That's yeah, almost it's iffy. Yeah, that, that, that's almost something unheard of when discussing an Argento film, even today. But the, the soundtrack is terrible. So he, he pulls in Bill Wyman and Claudio Simonetti from Goblin, some opera soprano check, guys from Iron Maiden, a bunch mm. of bands we never heard of, to contribute some really heavy stuff. Okay, whatever. It's just, it's just at scenes that call for atmospheric music are, are have the weirdest kind of metal in the back. And it's just, yep. it's just, it works against the visuals. It'd be um, worse in Demons, but this was pretty bad with that. Yeah, yeah. I actually like Demons. I accepted what happened in Demons when he used the same thing. But in Phenomena, it just doesn't work. But yeah, so yeah, there's that. <laughs> so 1985 also. He's in a TV movie, The Corskin Brothers, as the Chancellor. It's some obscure TV movie released the year after the more famed Cheech and Chong vehicle of the same name. French bread. There's nothing harder than that. On guard. <laughs> so that's all there is to say about that one. But he also does Treasure of the Amazon. It's a lesser Rene Cardona Jr. exploitation adventure film of the period, with a drunken Stuart Whitman looking quite dang Haggerty-esque as a super sadistic river rat in search of gold, but somehow he still manages to get laid. He treats his natives like shit, cuts off their fingers, throws them to the piranhas for trying to steal whatever he thinks he has already, and priest John Ireland doesn't like it one bit, but the drama is non-existent here. Pleasance appears late in the film, teamed up with his sultry, topless Amazon princess, but the whole thing's kind of muddled. Both parties are in search of the same treasure trove of diamonds. In this case, he's a World War II Nazi who wants them gold to restart the Third Reich. She wants it to help her people. Ireland wants it to help the church poor. Whitman just wants it for his own self. There's double-crosses, attempted rapes, murders by man and beast, but it never gets interesting or amusing like so many Diodato, Martino, and Lindsay variations on the Jungle film. It's less gruesome than the Camel film, but more nasty and cuss-heavy than King Solomon's Mines or the Tarzan film revivals of its day. So, yeah, it kind of stinks. <laughs> oh, I can't anything to what you said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I agree with you 100%. There, I couldn't say anything positive or negative. I agree with you on this. So then the uh, same year, he does Nothing Underneath. One of a few films in this period where Pleasance is relegated to the police inspector or detective role. The 
this dorky young forest ranger keeps getting dizzy spells on rope bridges about his twin sister, who just happens to have all the family genes as an Annie Bell lookalike model in Milan getting murdered. So he jumps on a plane to Italy, runs afoul of the hotel staff, and meets up with local cop Pleasance, telling him this crazy story, and being his last case before retiring... Pleasance plays along with it. In the end, it all boils down to lesbian friends and a psycho derived surprise, quote-unquote. There's a bit of modeling glitz with scattered lingerie shots, John Taylor, Duran Duran's teenage girlfriend, a girl masturbating from across his hotel room for no reason whatsoever, uh, workout scenes. Did she need out- one? <laughs> no, not really, but an outdoor fashion show complete with runway and a lot of 80s music I probably recognized, which may be why it never made its way over here to DVD, but it's pretty cheap on a Euro disc under its Dutch title. Pleasance underplays it for a change, though he does deliver a few real zingers that may or may not have been in the script. I could have done with this one being a lot sexier and sleazier than it actually turns out to be, but it's not bad, and apparently it's a huge hit over in Italy. Yes, I did. Uh, I actually uh, had this in time before I got a hold of an English language uh, copy, and I, I I actually enjoyed it quite a bit. Yeah, it's got problems. Uh, you know, the guy the guy looked like he was picked up on the, maybe they saw him in the airport. Hey, can you act? <laughs> uh, all right, take this. Take the next flight to Italy. But I'm going to to Arizona now. You're going to Italy, and uh, it's a, a, a actually nice to see Donald Pleasance just like having fun. You know, he probably got a vacation out of the deal, so he's having fun with the role and. Hey, there are worse things in the world. Much better. He's having more fun in this than he would in Inspectors. I didn't see that one. So if you want to take it. Avalon film. I, you know, it was a period any 80s horror I had to get my hands on. And uh, I don't know. You know, Wikipedia said Michael J. Weldon observed the plot was inspired by Crater Mass in the Pit. Well, Michael J. Weldon didn't see a lot of movies. He pertained to see in his big Michael J. Weldon book. And that's for another story. <laughs> Spectres was, it looked like an Italian TV, I think it was an Italian TV movie. Um, <sighs> during excavations in Rome, uh, a wall collapses, and, and they find bodies in, 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 in the wall, and then they bring archivists, archaeologists down, and they think the, that hallway, that tunnel might be haunted. It's... It's far and away, far different from Quite a in the Pit, but, you know, hey, you want to reach out, go ahead, do it. <laughs> Where were you going next? Prince of Darkness, which is another John Carpenter one. We took this one, and we had John Carpenter show, obviously. One of so many of his films that both of us absolutely love, but which I count among my all-time favorites of his. Back in the 80s, when absolutely no one was making connections between religion and magic, much less both of them the computer algorithms, advanced and abstract mathematics, parallel universes, and quantum chaos theory, Carpenter managed to glom onto what was then some truly cutting-edge thought to deliver a piece that below the expected sci-fi horror film tropes really delivers a gut punch and opens the mind of many possibilities to see things that you may have missed before in the same old texts and practices. Right, wrong, or simply on the right track in a vague and general sense. Spend a few minutes thinking about this one and the connections being made, and I'm willing to bet you have an aha moment, as Crowley put it. A cast of likable folks, the somewhat faceless leading man aside. This is also one of the few films of his data feature not one, three Asians, and a couple of black folks besides, making up the bulk of the cast, plus my man Tom Bray from Riptide. There's lots of jokes with plenty of apocalyptic tension and a real sense of impending doom that even more intimate pieces like his remake of The Thing or the single-town-based horrors of The Fog don't quite capture. Using one small set in the church and a dark secret being kept in the archives and basement, there's a reason the scriptwriter is pseudonymously credited as Martin Quatermass, though it goes far beyond even the Doctor Who and the demon shtick of Quatermass in the Pit, which we had talked about in our Hammer show. 
Claustrophobic is Assault in Precinct 13 with Elements of the Fog, The Thing, and even Escape from New York. A silent cameo from Alice Cooper. And a role that lets Pleasance out Loomis's recurring Halloween character. This is damn good stuff, and I can only imagine it failed with certain segments of the horror audience by going right over the heads. Creator had it right. You enter a new dimension of terror behind the mirror. Damn good stuff, and probably my most revisited of all the John Carpenter films. It's one I didn't warm up to for a very, very long time. I don't know what the reason was. Maybe I stayed away because one of the Hardy Boys was, was the nominal hero. <laughs> uh, yeah, Jameson Parker. Uh, uh, poor guy. You know, he's actually decent, and he just got stuck in, in, a, in a big TV series. And was That was actually he... Parker Stevenson. Jameson Parker was different, but oh, same was idea. He? Yeah, same idea, though. I thought he was oh, on he some misspoke. 70s. Oh, see, I'll admit to making a mistake. Who the fuck is this guy? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, he oh. was the problem. I actually mentioned it was being the problem here. Yeah, okay. So, his from, oh, he's a, he's a TV soap guy. Right. Yeah, okay. Wow, one life to live. The immigrants, heart to heart. Yeah. Murder, <laughs> she wrote. Oh, oh Simon, boy. Simon, is he still alive? It must be. I don't think he's that old. Oh, so he ended up as the narrator of endangered species, California fish and game wardens. <clears throat> but, <laughs> but back then, he was the guy that people mistook for Parker Stevenson. Parker Stevenson. <laughs> <laughs> Unless you're Kirsty Alley, who's going to talk about how big his penis was. <laughs> oh, guys. No, 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 no. no. Um, remember, yeah. this is the... the the 2000 woke show whatever <laughs> um so yeah jameson parker also known as not parker stevenson <laughs> is, is in this and you know actually looking at the cast list it's like who the fuck are these people so <laughs> victor wong was actually the husband of my co-worker really yeah yeah this is true she was black and her name was olive she passed away wow. uh and 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 she told me one time, she just ordered it. She goes, do you like these kind of movies? I'm, yes, yes, I do. You, How'd you know? I know where it got around. That's my husband. Really? Oh, wow. well, my ex-husband. So, oh, Victor <laughs> Wong is your husband? You're like, duh, I'm all of Wong. You know, like, okay. And I met her son, who, who it's funny, because Victor Wong was, he always played these kind of, he played like this denial, bordering on daughtering. Yeah, like a David Suzuki type, for those of you who yeah, don't know. Yeah, yeah, and, and apparently he was a real bastard. Oh, really? He sent his son into into rehab because this, uh, I don't know, he, he tortured the son because it was a mixed marriage thing. Jeez. Yeah, it was crazy, crazy. Every time I see, ooh, this. You're coloring my thoughts, man. I love this guy. <laughs> yeah, this yeah, I can tell you shit, shit I know, man. But Dennis Dunn, who's a lot of fun in a. Uh, a uh, John Carpenter movie I really don't like. The Big Trouble in Little China. Little China, yeah. I hate this. that movie. And uh, other people in this. Where was it? Kurt Russell. But anyway, so our hero sort of is, is Donald Pleasance. And it's a fun movie. I, I'm not a huge fan of it. I did not revisit this film because they were really crazy about it. <laughs> um, but one I saw you skipped over is Jango 2. Okay. Uh, so, so Franco Nero portrayed Django in the big ass, very popular Sergio Cabucci Spaghetti Western '67, I think. Mm-hmm. So, the only true sequel was this 1987 film directed by Nello Rosati. Oh, so Nello Rosati pretty much worked on the fringe of erotic film. <clears throat> you know, 
as he says, <laughs> and uh, his his other kind of genre esque film may have been Alien Terminator. But that one, yes. <laughs> Uh, with Franco Nero again and George Kennedy, also known as Top Line, which is pretty bad. But in Django Strikes Again, it actually all worked out, and 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 Donald Pleasance plays a sort of oddball character who pops in and out of the film. Django's we have to take it like Django's been spending many, many, many years. He's after the first Django film, living his life as a monk. But when, when people have been threatened in the Amazon, and uh, yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Django breaks <laughs> open that coffin of, of automatic weapons and goes to work. Strangely <laughs> enough, Christopher Connolly, who had a, a rebirth of a career as kind of seminal hero in a couple of Italian filmmakers' films in the late 80s, early 90s, plays the bad guy here. Okay. And uh, but it's nice to see Donald Pleasance in here. He's not dubbed. He does his own voice. Um, Franco's greatness. I don't know what anybody was thinking. I, I know Sergio Cabucci, the director of the original thing, was on the periphery of this production. One of the one of the big things is uh, this. What the hell was her name? Luciana Lentini, who was a weightlifter singer. <laughs> Wait, wait, I'm going to get to it now. Also known as Letia Lee Lion, right? Okay. Who was the Amazon, but also transgender. <laughs> plays a very sexy Amazon in this film. So there you have it. Okay. <laughs> so 1988, he winds up in Vigero Diodato's Phantom of Death. Another of Pleasance's late career turns as a police detective, this time for one of Diodato's cheesier late career entries, where Logan himself, Michael York, is a sort of modern-day vampire with a rare accelerated aging disease that he has to kill young women to forestall, or will wind up sitting around in some really bad makeup. The only thing close to amusing here is when they have to pull in a bunch of old bums for a lineup, and of course they're grousing away the whole time. Oh, and York is also a classical pianist, but it doesn't unpack much other than to show that all your money can't help you sometimes. It's really just an excuse to meditate on deadly diseases like cancer. It's a very uncomfortable watch, and not half as much of an exploitation angle as you'd think. For all its inanity, Dial Help was a lot more fun than this one. Yeah, Dial Help is a lot better than this. Uh, Michael yeah. York was, is okay, and so is Edwige Finetch, who's in this film. Donald Pleasance is kind of going by the numbers in this movie. Um, it's a bit of an unpleasant watch. I, yeah. I, I think they tried to market it as something it wasn't, and so they had a problem. So, same year, he winds up in Vampire in Venice. Atmospheric for its era, think Joe D'Amato and Lindsay and Fulci's work for Film Mirage, all fog, cheese, cluck, and haze. This was a mess of a film that we discussed in our Klaus Kinski show. Essentially, they wanted a sequel to Herzog's Nosferatu, having secured its star Klaus. Problem is, they kept going through directors even before filming started, and it only got worse when directors and crews had to deal with a notoriously difficult actor. In the end, it was directed in part by producer Augusto Carmenito, and in part by Klaus himself around the time of his own Paganini debacle. Like other Kinski projects, Cobra Verde, for example, they were limited by the mad actor's fits and irrational demands, so by the time everyone threw their hands in the air and gave up, they hadn't filmed a good third of what was intended. So as you'd expect, it's a bit of a hatchet job, and I'm assuming Kinski's direction is more or less limited to all those scenes of Barbara de Rossi rolling around the buff with and without Kinski. Does it achieve what you'd expect of a cycle in Nosferatu? Does it even achieve what the scriptwriters intended? <laughs> but like so many Klaus Kinski films, it's still oddly watchable if it's had disjointed and with a weirdly open ending. Pleasance is one of the priests in attendance at DeRossi's family home who wheels the old countess around, makes faces and yells warning at would-be vampire killer Christopher Plummer. That's it. 
No, I think you pretty much nailed it. Uh, I, 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 I think at this time period, I, he, he's crazy. He was very crazy, Klaus Kinski. He was a crazy man. And um, I think he was a very, for years, if not the majority of his adult life. You know, it's a funny thing is when he died, he looked much older than he was. Yes. He was 65. The guy looked like he was like way high in the 70s. Mm-hmm. So he, he just jammed uh, decades of film roles into into his brief life. Um, <laughs> he was a highly sexual being. You wouldn't think that looking at him, but, you know, girls were just magnetic. They were mag- magnetized to him. Go figure, right? We're in the wrong game. Um, <laughs> so they make this movie, and, yes, everything you said is true. You know, there was a problem of production. It was almost like the... Um, the last thing he did, Paganini. Yeah, Paganini. That was his own. Yeah, that was his own thing, and it was just part of it's a porno, and not even a good one. Yep. So you know, he just likes to to dial things and direct things into a, a way where they're going. I think poor Donald Pleasance is in this because he agreed to be in a film that, and Christopher Plummer as well. They both agreed to be in a film that it did not end up <laughs> supposed to be. <laughs> Also in 88, Halloween 4, Return of Michael Myers. After the interesting experiment that was Season of the Witch, the Halloween series returns to accepted slasher territory and picks up where Halloween 2 left off. Myers, of course, survived the explosion at the hospital, as did Dr. Loomis, albeit with a messed-up, mad-ball sort of face. There's a directive, rather ineffectual swipe of the original Halloween's opening sequence where they transport Myers from jail to the bug house. It's raining, he kills everyone and escapes, but there's no atmosphere, not anywhere near as much as last time around, at least. Lewis resumes chasing after Michael, just happening to stop for gas at the same station where Myers killed the attendant and mechanic and cut all the phone lines. Oh, and there he is, hanging out in the attached diner. Hey, buddy, it's been a few years, how's tricks? Just when you think he's hallucinating the whole thing, Michael drives the tow truck right through the closed garage door and smashes Lewis's car, leaving him to the untender mercies of the American driver. Some teens make like they're going to give him a lift, they let him catch up, and they peel out and make him eat their dust. He gets one, finally, from a cracked-out and rather felonious preacher. It's a weird attempt to inject humor into the otherwise po-faced goings-on. This time, since they couldn't afford Jamie Lee, he's headed back to Haddonfield not to kill his sister, but some heretofore undiscussed niece who'd grow up to be smoking hottie Daniel Harris, but here's just an annoying little kid. Loomis manages to recruit the sheriff. There's a local posse of fat drunks with shotguns out shooting up the town in search of Michael, the leader of whom looks a hell of a lot like Donald Trump. There's also a young Kathleen Kinmont who go on to films like Phoenix the Warrior and CIA codename Alexa before getting involved with soap actor turned wannabe kickboxing star Lorenzo Lamas and starring on a season two of his ridiculous 90s show Renegade, here providing the TNA by banging the bushy-eyebrowed Sasha Jensen of Ghoulies 2, and one of my favorite Lovecraft adaptations, The Unnameable 2, the statement of Randolph Carter. There's a slight bit of tension provided by Michael having the savvy to head down to the local power plant and throw the guy working there into the Transformers, which shorts everything out and plunges the town into one long blackout. But it's pretty silly overall, and everyone's trying to dance around the fact that this is really just a a cheap Lifetime-style child endangerment scare film in slasher clothing. Moments work, but overall, it's a letdown. Worse, it feels like Pleasance is barely in the damn thing. Yeah, well, this is just the... This and and there's two more pictures where Pleasance is barely in it. Yeah. Uh, Halloween Five, you know, and and Halloween: The Curse of Michael Myers, uh, which you know, depending on your outlook, are better, worse, worse or better, because they, there there was no good strong actors or even a story there. So they figure, let's bring back Loomis. You know, there there was that. Where are you going next? 
I have nothing to add to River of Death. Michael Dudikoff, this the all-time least of kickboxing stars. Well, okay, he's better than Lorenzo Lamas or the guy who did American Samurai, but that's kind of a low bar. Likeable enough, but he was more of a goofy TV star type than a believable fighter in every sense of the word. Anyway, you know him from the American Ninja films or maybe even the cheesy Invasion USA sequel, Avenging Force. What you most assuredly do not associate him with is this sub-King Solomon's Mind, sub-Romance in the Stone, well-sub-Indiana Jones stinker that features Robert Vaughn and Pleasance's feuding Nazis, Herbert Lom is a local baddie, and an unshaven yet impeccably quaffed Dudikoff failing at playing hard-edged, hard-living jungle explorer. The story is banal, the acting sucks, the image quality is strictly HB original or sci-fi channel original movie. They all just, it's strong somehow. It never sticks. How the hell was this made in 89? Canon would have, and in fact did do similar fare with far more polished class and budget, not to mention likability. This one's just an unflushable. I'm amazed it's out on Blu-ray. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Purportedly, uh, a, a uh, Mr. McLean ripoff. Yo, bad enough we got Robert Vaughn hamming it up and Pleasance and Herbert Lom. Uh The sad thing is that Steve Carver, who directed this or was credited with the direction, did some decent films in his career. An assistant on Johnny Got His Gun, he, he directed Capone, one of the better films, uh, which starred Ben Gazzara. He directed Drum, of which I can say very little positive things. But he did, he did Lone Wolf McQuaid, again. We, we talked very highly of that. Chuck Norris, David Carey. Chuck Norris, yeah. He also directed something called Bulletproof, which is a decent film. But his, his, his career is like all over the place. But this really is a stinker, and it's a mess. And, and to say that, the least, is they couldn't even find a vaguely interesting Euro actress to be the nominal love interest in this thing is, is a problem. It's another, it's supposed to be Alistair McLean, but it also has very, I watched this for the show, has very strong elements of, uh, who did Ten Little Indians? Um, well, a lot of people, that was the Lou Grade one, wasn't it? No, the, the, the author. Oh, Agatha Christie. Agatha Christie. It has a very Agatha Christie feel. It's almost like it was a canon film, but it's not. It's very strange. It's a mess. And not something. Who remember Donald Pleasance for? So, Paganini Horror, same year. Pleasance is best film since Halloween 2, outside Prince of Darkness, maybe. And he's barely even in it. I've covered this one in depth over at Third Eye. You can look it up on Google. Paganini Horror Review, Third Eye. It's funny and it really gets in there. Bottom line, Pleasance is a crazy old bum who meets up with a musician in a bombed-out building, selling the guy a copy of Niccolo Paganini's unreleased final work. Somehow, when he brings this to the Phantom Blue by way of vixen like mostly girl rock band, they rework this cheesy little ballad, which sounds nothing like Paganini with his flurries of notes, silly for speed's sake, into one of their, quote, hits, getting trapped in an old villa where they film their video for the song. Pleasance reappears at the end for a silly revelation and twist ending, and bam, it's all over. I like Cutsy's horror films a lot. I think he's far better suited to stuff like Paganini Horror, The Black Cat, and Killer Must Kill Again than all those cheesy sci-fi fantasy films he made. Not that they weren't entertaining in their own weird way. It's not perfect, even by the standards of the heavy metal horror subgenre, but it's fun. There's two gorgeous women in spandex here. And it's Italian horror. Once you get a taste for this stuff, you can't get enough. Again, check out the review over at Third Eye Cinema, and you won't be disappointed if you want some laughs. Anything you want to say about this one? Well, it's always nice to see Daria Nicolotti in, in a picture, and there are a lot of unfamiliar but very nice-looking Italian women in this film. Mm-hmm. This is one of those strange Luigi, Luigi Cozzi pictures, done maybe for Italian TV, but maybe thought of two graphics or actually got theatrical before going back to Italian TV. I believe it's, it's hit blue in the past few years, Blu-ray. It's a bit soft-looking film. You know, Cartier's best pictures are Blade in the Dark, Photos of Joy. I love that movie. That's because of Serena Grandi and no one can ever say anything. We did a 
<laughs> oh, that's the Lamberto Bomb. We did a Lamberto Bomb show. That's what. Yeah. yeah. They're not. The, they're different people, folks. I, I I had a moment. It's okay. But Coachy, yes, you're right. Hold on, I have to redeem myself. <laughs> Coachy did make Hercules and lots of cheesy stuff. Yes. Uh. He did the Killer Must Kill again. That was his only job. Star Crash. Right. He was also in the uh, Argento series. There was that Door to Darkness. He did one of the episodes. But that was it his was, only which, horror. Which is pretty good. Which is pretty good. Yeah, it was. Yeah, it probably. Well, I don't know. The Killer Must Kill Again is okay. But the Black Cat and this one are really the ones that are, you know, horror, horror. For at least this kind of time horror. This, yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. And he did direct Star Crash with Caroline Monroe. Yes, he did. Which is what it is. So, uh, <laughs> next. All right, so you mentioned Halloween 5. This is the same year, Revenge of Michael Myers. Mm-hmm. So this time, Michael survives with the help of some old bum who he repays by killing him. Gee, thanks, Mike. Our little brat is in shock and won't talk, so they put her under Dr. Loomis's care, despite the fact that he's kind of nuts and showing it even more than this one that he has in a bit. Apparently, she has psychic powers, which includes some sort of weird telekinetic mind link with Michael. The usual three-way chase between Michael, the kid, and Loomis ensues. In some ways, this one's a lot more fun than Halloween 4, and that's mainly down to two things. First, a cute pair of bubbly 80s girls with a penchant for pulling weird pranks between trying to get laid. The one where they pretend to be stuck by Michael almost get the one's boyfriend shot down by the cops is a jaw-dropper. Pleasant's going batshit crazy throughout the film, to the point where he's clearly degenerated from the guy we saw in the first two films to someone who needs to be sedated and locked away himself. The staging of the final showdown in the old abandoned Myers home is another plus, but I liked it a lot more the first time or two I saw it than in this revisitation. It's okay... But when the first two are stellar, films like 4, 5, and 6, much as later direct like H2O or the Rob Zombie shit, it just can't measure up. I'm sorry. So I'll just move forward, since you already mentioned it, to Lovejoy in 1992. He winds up on an episode called The Prague Sun. One of the two episodes that was remarketed as a Christmas special, but it's really just a standard episode of the enjoyable series about a roguish antiques dealer who winds up running afoul of conspiracies and solving mysteries relating to smuggling, duplicating, and such like. Here he and his unofficial assistant Eric, and later main squeeze for first half of the series Lady Jane, head to Prague on the trail of a batch of diamonds hidden in a particular antique. It's not worth getting into the setup, suffice it involves friends of friends and dead guys turning up alive. Pleasance doesn't show for a full hour, and then it's just a corpse. But ten minutes more, and it turns out he too is still alive, and is also looking for those diamonds, kidnapping Lady Jane to ensure Lovejoy works for him rather than proving another rival. Don's looking pretty old here, but he can still pull off a certain level of money menace, as in being threatened by a senator or DA. That scene, Lovejoy is being choked by Pleasance's bodyguard until Lady Jane clocks him upside the head with a pair of brass fire pokers, and the guy goes flying out the window and lands in the middle of an old-style European fun fair with mechanical puppets laughing at his presumed broken back and blood-spewing demise. <laughs> I thought this was a family show. I, I did see that show, but I don't remember the episodes. So, 95, now, a couple years later, he does the Halloween 6 Curse of Michael Myers. Wow, did things change here? I mean, Halloween 1 and 2 were very much of a piece. 3 was odd, but still rather good. And 4 and 5 were very much flawed, losing a lot of what made the original pair so great in the first place. Whereas solid enough late 80s slashers, at least equivalent to, if not better than a lot of the competition of their day. Think about where the genre was headed up at that point, with formula long since having set in, and weird tangents like comedy starting to take prominence. In that light, Return and Revenge of Michael Myers were pretty damn decent, huh? But this one happened six years later in the mid-90s. Slashers had long since had their day, with the final offerings of any note came around 91, maybe 92. We were about to head into the scream revival of the genre, and it was considered a revival. Nobody was making these things anymore. They'd very much had their day. So with an utter lack of atmosphere, cut-rate actors, and flat direction, we get this made-for-cable TVS 
Ghostbusters stinker that takes the ending of five and goes batshit with it. Remember the Silent Night, Deadly Night series when they dropped any pretense at the Santa Claus serial killer thing and went straight into faux Satanism with Clint Howard skulking around and malevolent roaches or some shit? Yeah, well, here both Michael and the brat were abducted by an evil cult trying to raise the spirit of Salim or some such nonsense, and it's all inside Michael. I guess Dr. Loomis was right all along. Michael is pure evil. Oh, and the kid was raised just so that she could bear Satan's baby or whatever, like to the devil a daughter, without all the grim British atmosphere or kinky bits to get you through. Ridiculous, boring, not very bloody or slasher-like, doesn't work as any sort of a cult-leaning whatever. It's just cheesy and bad. In the end, you have a few choices of a hard stop with a Halloween series. After two, after three, or after five, the rest of them, they ain't worth wasting your time, I'm sorry. Perhaps sensing the particular well had run dry, Pleasance did one more real zinger of an Italian film and then cashed in his chips. And with films like this serving as his bread and butter, you really can't blame him. Fatal Frames in 1996. The frighteningly tranny like Stephania Stella and her boyfriend Al Festa make this bizarre blend of bad rock videos and crazy Lichalo that doesn't work on any level other than sheer disbelief that it even exists. Festa, who made his career as, guess what, a rock video director, here directs his love affair to his sub Wilson of a girlfriend, telling us over and over again that she's such a huge star and spending half her screen time on some sort of song or video number just to remind us. Somehow this clown managed to rope in not only Scream Queen Linnea Quigley, but Eurocult film stars David Warbeck, Alita Volley, and our man Donald Pleasance for these minuscule bit parts, mostly sitting around eating or chatting in a conference room. I believe it was not only a career killer, but literally killed nearly all of them off. Warbeck died right after filming Pleasance during. Volley stuck around and do a handful of films in the 90s before giving up the ghost, but hey, you can't say y'all didn't try, huh? Because two out of three ain't bad. <laughs> terrible film and a terrible thing to go out on. What's your take? Well, because... <sighs> <laughs> so because Festa, whose real name was something else in the time that's too long, was a, a, uh, a cinematographer uh, of rock videos... You know, very popular, early 80s, mid-80s in Italy, and uh, he, he hooked up with Stefania Stella. He also he also was the DP on a couple of uh, low-budget movies. He was also the composer of a couple of Bruno Mattai films, like Robo War, etc., etc. So let's, what are we going to do about Stefania Stella? So let's, let's deal with that. So <laughs> she's an unusual-looking woman. They were a thing, and so he, uh, the director, put this giallo together, uh, Al Festa, put this giallo together. He got enough money built up that he built up this whole giallo rock video thingy together. Now, and barely in it, Donald Pleasance, who apparently passed away during filming. Is this correct? Yeah. And so they, they had to use a guy in a Donald Pleasance mask to f- Finish it. This is true, unfortunately. <laughs> David Warbeck, a visibly ill-looking David Warbeck, who actually lived a few more years, is also in this. This is thing like it's cursed or something, right? Uh, Alita Valley, probably her last picture. Linnea Quigley, who looked bad. Angus Grimm. Oh wow, one of his last pictures too. Yeah, Rosanna Brazzi. I mean, it's you got a lot of interesting people. It's long. It's over two hours. Yep. It's colorful. I'm, I'm reaching for the thing I'm, I'm, I'm trying to say. Just give me a moment. Did you say she was tranny looking? <laughs> yes. Do you remember me of Hina Wilson? <laughs> uh, I don't think so. She did have a husky voice. It's a big girl. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm looking at uh, her now. 
Yeah, I, I, oh, you wouldn't believe what she looks like now. But anyway, so. <laughs> Stefania Stella played this singer of rock videos, right? And so, you know, they're making this rock video. It's very, what was that? Was it Bob or Cozy made a picture about that similar thing? Yeah, we just talked about Paganini Horror. Right. And, and, and Lombardo Bava had, had done something very similar like that. Stefania Stella, a lot of people thought she was untalented. She was... A, like, all right, so think of Serena Grande, but like kind of a masculine Serena Grande, right? Is that the best way we could do that? Yeah, that's fair. And so uh, so this picture, I don't know, people hate it. It looks colorful. It's not entirely a bomb, but one of the things, too, wrong with the film was, wasn't the male lead some guy from Trauma? I think it might have been. Yes, it was, uh, oh, man. Oh, Chicho and Grassi is in this thing, too. I, I, <laughs> wow, Franco Chicho. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Franco Chicho. Rick Giannese. Now, Rick Giannese, he's got a really Italian name, right? Mm-hmm. Was also in the um, a couple of trauma pictures. And, uh, well, Al Festa was like a Pasquale something. I don't know uh, yeah, I, I don't even want to go there with that stuff. But, <laughs> again, it's not a good, uh, good place to go out on. No, <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> to say the least. Although... I just seen this. I did not know how true this is. They're planning on having a CGI Donald Pleasance in Halloween Kills due out 2021. Wow, what a bad idea. Well, that would take the last one, the Jamie Lee Curtis. Mm-hmm. That would that would take after the last one. So when was that? 2018, 2019. Yeah. So this is the direct sequel. It was supposed to be out this year, but nobody goes to the movie theater. So. It got delayed. So this is archival footage and CGI post-production. Whatever that means, we're not going to make any assumptions here. They should pull him from uh, cul-de-sac, pull his footage from there. <laughs> <and get> to <laughs> Halloween. So anyway, that's our Donald Pleasant show. Yes. Okay. So uh, thanks for joining us tonight. We hope you enjoyed a little drawing room chat on Donald Pleasance, both parts of it. Next time, well, we got plenty of ideas here. Uh, possibly Robert Mitchum. I don't know. There's a lot of... A lot of thoughts we threw out there, so we'll figure something out. If you'd like to contact us here, comments, suggestions, or you're a filmmaker or musician would like to join us on air, drop us a line at our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash weirdscenes1, or our website, weirdscenes1.wordpress.com. We are also on Twitter at weirdscenes1. We're at podbean, third.cinema.podbean.com. We're also on iTunes, iTunes, apple.com forward slash US, forward slash podcast, Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. You can just look for us under Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine Podcast. If you're particular, the ID is 553-402-044. Weird Scenes Inside the Goldmine, brought to you by the new and improved Third Eye Cinema, Weird Scenes Network, now on Podbean. So anything else you want to say before we finally close out? We hope you enjoyed listening to the show. We have lots of fun moments. We're trying to recapture the gold. We're trying to recapture uh, what makes this show special. We, you know, we admittedly were off because of the pandemic. Yeah, we, we had trouble accessing certain titles, and we wanted to make sure we could see as much as possible in order to do this right. Because uh, unlike other people, and some who do audio commentary, shh, 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 quiet, Lois, uh, we don't watch movies, but read generalization and reviews, and then make assumptions about things. And then when you actually see a movie, like, this guy didn't watch us. Who said that? <laughs> we, we, we do try. 
We do try. And we'll say we didn't see it. Or we'll say it's been so long since we see it, we can't really, really comment on it. And I think that's what makes us fun. Also, we go on tangents, which is, hey, we hope you're having fun listening. Hey, people, uh, whenever this will air, whether it's in November or possibly later, stay safe out there. Stay healthy. Wear your mask. Even if Donald Trump is still president. Oh, God. Still wear your mask. Don't listen to that fuck. fuck. Uh, uh, If Biden wins... This will be interesting. So, anyway, we hope you enjoyed this show. There'll be more to come. Yes. So, take care, people. All the best. See you after November 3rd. at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Tune in to Third Eye Cinema, your source for in-depth discussion of cult cinema with a focus on film that matters. Cult, grindhouse, drive-in, independent, and underground film from the dawn of the talkies through the early 90s. This is a forum where we explore genre film and music from around the world, in-depth conversation and career analysis with directors, actors, and musicians, and open discussion on films that matter, those that fall outside the mainstream corporate film by boardroom committee. These are the problems of the auteur, the visionary, the dreamer, the outsider. None of that direct that passes for mainstream film these days. This is all about the glory days of independent cinema from all over the world. Any of the hotbeds of obscure, oddball, or generally wild cinema available on DVD from the dawn of the medium to this very day. Join us as we delve deep into the cinematic netherworld here on Third Eye Cinema. Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific, on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. What is At Eye Level? A reductio ad absurdum look at the headlines politics to pop culture, from the corporate to the individual. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern, we take a not-so-serious look at the serious issues of the day. Whether it's politics, economics, social issues, music, or old movies and TV shows, we discuss everything the corporate media overlooks while making you laugh at the absurdity of it all. Hell, you've got to have a sense of humor about life. Just look at the headlines. So join me, Matt G., 
And me, Doc Savage. Every Monday at 6 p.m. Eastern as we navigate the sea of trolls, talking points, and trickery. We try to figure out a way to be there when tomorrow comes. At eye level, bringing more to you. Only on the Big Papa Network on Blog Talk Radio. Join us on Tuesday nights at 6.30 Eastern for an exploration of the many roads and methods which promise to lead us to the ultimate answer, a higher purpose, the meaning of life. I'm just like a lot of you, a middle-aged mom with piles of laundry and a meditation practice. I've been down many roads to get where I am today, and my journey is far from finished. But I'd like to share my experience and hard-earned wisdom with you. So what is it about women and spirituality? It seems like we're always the first to try out something new. Christianity was spread in large part by wealthy women. And where would Uncle Al be without a scarlet women? Who is by and far the largest audience of New Age alternative spirituality? What is it about us that always has us seeking? And why does it always seem that men tend to take over what we discover? Join us for a dialogue between two long-lost friends representing both the yin and yang aspects of the whole, each of whom have traveled multifarious paths all across the spectrum of spirituality, the dark side and the light, from the organized to the out of the way. This show is for all those frustrated in their quest who've been through various stops on the spectrum of spirituality and found them ultimately unfulfilling. Join us for some harder and lessons and thoughts on potential new directions and possible value in what inevitably fails in organized practice, but which may have some merit to the solo practitioner and fellow seekers of truth in this journey towards life. Moving towards life. Lessons in life and spirituality from an unconventional seeker. Bringing more to you only here on the Big Papa Online Network. On Blog Talk Radio. Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 p.m. Pacific. Join us for Weird Scenes Inside the Gold Mine, your essential guide to all things wild and wonderful in the world of cult entertainment. Drop in for a spell with Doc Savage, Lois Paul, myself. Discuss the beloved, the hated, the weird, and the wonderful world of cult films, music, television, and more. We'll be covering classic films, shows, musicians, and literature of the past, with an eye towards what new visions may still arise from the soullessly derivative mire of our modern age. Tune in. Turn on and take a step outside the mainstream as we dig deep into the rich vein of cult cinema, music, and television right here on Weird Seats Inside the Gold Mine. Only here on the Big Papa Online Network on Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> How you doing? All right. All right. Busy day. Busy day. I, guess yeah, I, did, I didn't intend for it to be busy. I uh, Actually, yesterday I was... The missus, you know, she was back for a couple of weeks, and she's going off to uh, these people going to Morristown for a couple of weeks. She's back for a few days, and they're either going to buy a house in Morristown or they're going back to New England because, you know, the pandemic thing. Right. And so I said, well, you know, I don't have much in terms of grocery if you're not going to be around. And, you know, ordering in is tasty, you know, your choice of food, but it, it adds up, sure. you know. So I said, I really need to go shopping, and I kind of lost my energy for that yesterday. I said, oh, I saw on Facebook a local record store. It's a real record store. I know, right? right. <laughs> was doing a record store day. And so I took a shower, and I'm uh, getting psyched up, and they started posting pictures. And I said, 
even outdoors, there's just way too many people. Yeah. I mean, I, and I mean, close than they should be. Mm-hmm. And I said, ah, fuck it. So, you know, I, the day got away from me. She went out for, uh, she went to work for most of the day. So I ended up doing a Zoom meeting with people. So I, I, I you said, I got to do the shopping, you know, because, you know, I work during the week. And right. I could escape during, I've done it before. <laughs> I'm taking a lunch hour. I'll be back three hours later. You know? <laughs> Um, so I went to ShopRite, uh, kind of the Hoboken, Jersey City border downtown. It's Sorry. big. Prices are decent. Okay. It is packed today. I've been there a couple of times, and it wasn't too bad. But today, it was packed. And, uh, yeah, I got back about an hour ago. put all the shit away. And uh, I just got my first webcam camera off of Amazon. Oh, nice. I haven't hooked it up yet because it just came today. It's tiny, man. <laughs> Must be 1080p. The reviews are quite good. Um, we'll see. It comes with a tripod and hook it up somehow. Because we do Zoom meetings occasionally for work, and then I join this Zoom chat group. I've been on for a couple of weeks, and then I joined again recently. There are older people. We're talking Vietnam vets. Right. And uh, a couple of retirees and the kind of people where I raise my eyebrows like, you know, they're like, so what's going on with you? And then one guy goes last night, I'm moving. Oh, good. That's cool, man. Somebody said, how much is the uh, place? Oh, 4000 a month. I'm thinking, what? <laughs> <laughs> I forget. People are people have done better at managing their money or they make a shitload of money. Yeah. Yeah. I really think the latter. Yeah, so they they could retire at that, and I'm thinking, even if you got a shitload of money, you're gonna blow through four thousand a month quickly. Of course, that's crazy. You know, just buy a house. <laughs> and his thing, well, the thing was, his his mother is, and he's older, so his mother's elderly, I assume, and so he he took it upon himself to take care of her. And it's like, nah, I just put my mom somewhere. You, know, you, you can't, you can't kill your last couple of years doing that. And uh, so they're going to live in a retirement home. And he's like, they serve us three meals a day. That's included. Like, dude, what are you doing to yourself psychologically? You know, my mind is saying, you know, mm-hmm. your time has not come yet. And you know, but you know, there's other people. It was my birthday this week. Yay! Yay. <laughs> yeah, so you yeah. have some uh, special booze there. Yeah, my my uh, my friend who we share a lot of interest in music. I'm like, oh, I know he's gonna give me some cool music stuff, and he gave me this this box in the shopping bag. I'm like, oh, because he just he was in Vermont the weekend before, so it was small batch boxes. They're small. They're like a Smirnoff, a large Smirnoff ice bottle mm-hmm. each, and uh, they're made there. This distillery so it's uh, one's lavender one's cucumber one's regular the regular's a little smooth which is nice i would equal a little harsher than smirnoff but not too bad mm-hmm. the lavender one oh my god it's powerful so there must have been lavender fields up there the, the birthday was okay yeah you know, it was it was a big birthday for me and on any other time I would have had friends meet me somewhere or come to a place or go to a place and celebrate in style. Right. You know, you go outdoors, the seating was limited to four, and what are you going to do? Yeah, right? exactly. Actually, it was a very nice place they took me to. 
on the water, and thank God it was a warm night. And, uh, you know, I had swordfish. I was like, wow, this is rocking. You know, I don't really eat that, but I was like, this is yummy. Right. You know, and uh, that was about it. So I, I went back home and bought myself music. <laughs> <laughs> I actually uh, ordered a couple things from Fish and uh, the artist from the way in and, uh, on his website. So it's coming from the U.K., Right. I missed uh, the vinyl. They they must have only had like so many of those. I got some CDs and I uh, got some other things here and there and uh, got some stuff from Keith Richards' site and probably spent a little bit more than I should have, but you know what the hell? It's my birthday, right? Yeah. You got to treat yourself. <laughs> and so, yeah, a lot of people are, uh, it looks like a lot of people are interested in that Donald Pleasant show we did, yeah. part one. Uh, we, you know, as you see, we, we, there were some comments, which usually is not. Mm-hmm. So, so that that was definitely a, a cool thing going on there, you know. So, I guess during the pandemic, you know, when we're ready to go with the show, just promote the hell out of it, and you know, more people are paid because more people are home. Exactly you know? right. So, that was a fun show, uh, and luckily we made it to I think what seventy two, seventy four, seventy four. Okay. So we finished, I'm looking at, at the notes here. We finished 74, so we're, we we begin with 75, I think. I'll okay, tell you, so, the, this last yeah. week, though, we've actually went and started watching. We finished up uh, Man in a Suitcase again, mm-hmm. and we started watching The Prisoner, and I'm like, God, this is a weird fucking show. I mean, in my head, I remember, like, yeah, it's kind of like Avengers-y, and you know, there's something off about it, and he's trying to make these big grand statements about society and individualism, mm-hmm. libertarianism. But I'm watching this, I'm like, this show's like, it doesn't work. It's <laughs> There's a reason it's a cult show, and not and it's not the same thing as any of the shows we talk about. No. Secret Agent, you know, which uh, Danger Man, we talked about last week how it kind of fails because of, you know, the first season or so where it was half an hour. It's, there's too much stuff crammed in there to actually resolve, and it never does. And then later on, when it came back a couple seasons later, because they disappeared and did other stuff, and then they revived the show again, they made it longer, as I recall. I think they actually went to an hour. Right. But somehow, it's still... Then it felt like a drag. There was always that thing underneath where he never really seemed interested in any of the women, and, you know, I'd heard it said that it was because he was, like, really hardcore Catholic family man or some shit. So it never really does the thing that any other of these spy shows, these Bondian sort of things does. There's no sex appeal to it. Mm-hmm. Well... Even so, it still works better in a lot of ways than this one because I'm sitting there watching. I was like, God, this is hypnotically repetitious. You can't really tell the opening credits don't feel like opening credits, even though it's the same thing every time. And this weird thing where every single time there's another number two. <laughs> you know, I mean, okay, sometimes you get someone like Peter Wingard in there. Oh, jackpot. But other times it's just like, wow, they're doing the exact same dialogue, but their laugh sucks worse every time. <laughs> it's just, I don't know. It. There's something about it that's like, oh, this is interesting, but I'm bored. <laughs> and we're only like, I don't know, six episodes in out of however many it was, 18? 13, 13. So, so I can see why it ultimately didn't work. Now, they had other problems with it. I know they're showing them out of order and all kinds of things going on behind the scenes. But, yeah, what a strange freaking show. Oh, yeah. I, I, I yo, uh, that it got made for its time period. I give them a lot of credit for that because, oh, yeah. I mean, I don't know how the hell he he presented it to them. And, you know, obviously, he must have had such clout. Well, he he did. 
Because going right Danger Man was a hit. Danger Man was a hit, and he went right into uh, uh, Ice Station Zebra. Remember? Mm-hmm. Yes. Which, which actually was a, a field film. We, we discussed that. Uh, I think we did. I don't know if we did because we didn't really cover uh, who, who else was in that. Was it Roger Moore? No, that was false. No, uh, that was Rock Rock Hudson, uh, Rock Hudson, Jim Brown, Ernest Borgnine, Patrick McGowan, and probably somebody else. I don't know. I, I talked about it with somebody. And yeah, no, you brought it up. But... Yeah, it's it's such a weird. Oh, I know. It was somebody who was a friend of mine. No, it wasn't you. It was somebody else who was a friend of mine who really liked that. And I was like, I was really curious. Like, they were really, this is such an action filled film. And I was like, well, really, that's the problem with it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, 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 it probably got one of Rock Hudson's better performances. But it, it, the problem is, it's not an action filled film. You know, it's, you've got a lot of internecine going on. You know, you're just not sure what's going on. So I think coming off Secret Agent Man and a couple of feature films, they're like, yeah, go ahead, do whatever you want. And then it's like, <laughs> that's probably why they got shown out of war. They probably didn't know what the hell to make out of it. <laughs> they probably didn't know what was going on. They were expecting another Avengers, maybe some Danger Man thing, and no, I don't know what the hell's going on here. <laughs> I am not a number. I'm a free man. <laughs> Although there have been books written about that show. There are cults about that show. There used to be, oh, yeah. used to be, I guess, the convention to end all conventions was yearly. They kept the village in Wales. Wow. They kept it intact. <laughs> so there would be, you know, like... Great cro- greetings. <laughs> right, you know, like Crawfordy was this, this British thing where the Fairport alumni would get together, those that can make it and those that wanted to go, and they would do this in the field every summer. Mm-hmm. And you know, it's, so you got Thompson and whoever else was alive, and then offshoots, and even people from Steely Span would show up, and anybody left from Pentangle, mm-hmm. you know, just related, you know. And yeah. so there would be this just thing, this prisoner thing. I forgot what they used to call it. And so people would go to the village in Wales and, and you'd see the photos. And like, oh my god. It's still <laughs> the same. Wow. Uh, I I lost contact with people who used to go there. And I don't know if it's still there. Well, probably, you know, the villages. But whether all the, the huts and etc. Mm-hmm. But yeah, that was like, that must have been like the ultimate thing. You know, it's like after all these years, it's still there, you know. Exactly. You got to take a picture of one of those plastic bubbles, like Photoshop, then. <laughs> now, okay. See, all right. So, I probably like it better than you, but I agree with you. It just doesn't mm-hmm. work because we just don't know what's going on. The problem with that show is you really have to think about it. And we're really good. You know, you and I, we're really good about, you know, when you were watching something and and the film makes us think, mm-hmm. you know, that's a good film. But when you're watching something like this and it makes you think and you have to think about it, and we still can't figure it out, that's the problem. But yeah, that, I mean, there's a base, you know, very obvious base thing where, okay, he's the secret agent. He decided to pack it in and his government goes and kidnaps him because they think that he's right, going right. to sell off secrets. You know, why did you retire suddenly? All right, there you go. And that's what's going on every episode. Why does number two keep changing? You know, why does a lot of these things keep happening? You didn't, it's never really explained. Well, I think the number but, two keeps changing, although Leo McKern makes a couple of returns as number two for some odd reason. And why is he number six? But well, he's actually number one the whole time. 
by, right. by the time you get to the end of it. But the plastic bubble thing, that's innovative. I mean, and in the first episode, why are they trying to get him to run to be number two? I mean, you know, it's like there's a lot of things in there. It's like, uh, but you know, as it goes on and on, it becomes so repetitive and trance-like, and it's just it's a strange friggin' show. I mean, I can't picture anybody else recording anything like this, even back then when things were a lot trippier and you had weird shows like The Avengers out there or Adam Adam or whatever the hell else you want to throw out. This is bizarre, Jason King. This was, or the champions, you know, where there's kind of alien superheroes of sorts. Uh, That's really simplifying it, but we talked about that in the past. It's just, I don't know, and something about it just does not work. So it's uh, it's fascinating when you revisit these things. Like one time I was like, oh wow, yeah, it was a great show. Another time you're like, I don't know what's going on. And next time I'm like, geez, what the hell? <laughs> so how did this get popular? I, mean, I can see why it's a cult. It's definitely got that thing where people are sitting there scratching their heads, going, yeah, man. You know, they I don't know re- something's going on. They there. remade <laughs> it. They remade it with. Um, I never saw it. Was it Jim Caviezel who played Jesus? And interesting British actor. Uh, they remade it as a one season, or maybe they hoped it would run longer. I never saw it because I was just like, mm, I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And it definitely was of its time because uh, nobody really talks like that anymore. Where is this whole big shtick about, you know, the individual versus society and conformism? Right. And, all right, fine. We get that. But it's just like, I don't know. There's something. It, it's, it's got that vibe of like 2001 where people are like what the hell is that supposed to mean and you picture people sitting there you know hitting a bong going wow man but that movie <laughs> works for some reason I don't it works more better for me each time I go back to it every five or six years 2001 because mm. it still doesn't make a hell of a lot of sense I mean yeah it does but it doesn't you know it's exactly right so the loneliness, <laughs> right, so I... the loneliness of space <laughs> So, uh, silent running. Somebody we got to talk about that kind of stuff. (laughs) Yeah, Uh, which I thought we did. No, we always intended to do a show that was, because the trick is they aren't really related. I mean, the closest you could say is Charlton Heston. We did talk about the Planet of the Apes films with Ryan McDowell. Mm. But, you know, and at the time I hadn't seen them again yet, so I actually had a different take. I mentioned it on another show later on. Mm. But uh, it would kind of be this thing of, like, weird... Late sixties, early seventies sci-fi. We did talk about I... that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We talked yeah. about doing stuff like that. We couldn't get a handle on it, but maybe unrelated works because it's you know. Yeah, because they cover anything from like the Illustrated Man to something like that. I mean, it's, there's there's a range of odd films out there from that time period. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, ZPG. Uh, well, the Apple. Well, no, it's later. The Apple. Good God. <laughs> You know what, though? So, you're going to laugh. So I'm, I sat down a couple of weeks ago. Uh, I used to post things I watched. And then nobody commented. Nobody said anything. I said, fuck it. You know, I'm just putting it out there. But I do it once in a while, but not too often. So I watched the Canon Films documentary, um, the one by the guy who did the uh, the Aussie uh, you know, documentary uh, on Aussie genre films. And um, it was quite good. It was quite good. And there's a lot, it begins a lot with the Apple, because that was like their first picture. Right. And I'm like, oh, man. So, <laughs> so I did, <laughs> I thought, and here I, I'm watching this thing going, so I did a last Starfighter panel a couple of years ago, you know, and she's in that, Catherine Mary Stewart, and uh, she's quite good. She also did the 
you know, a couple other genre things around that time. And that was her starry role. And she sang, and they were interviewing her for this canon thing. And she's like, I had to learn to sing. I had to learn to dance. And she was the star of this thing. I'm like, I saw the apple. I completely forgot about it. And I'm like, I had the opportunity to ask her about this, and I didn't. <laughs> and so I watched the apple after watching A Star Get Married. I said, this movie is great. Really? You think so? I said, this, this Menachem Golan was definitely doing a Ken Russell. And gender bending. And the songs aren't that bad, actually. The choreography isn't that bad. And I'm like, why was this everybody like everybody's top ten worst films of all time list? I'm like, why is that? I don't get it. I'm thinking, to me, to me, it comes off as a cross between Xanadu, which I always liked, mind you, with Gene Kelly and uh, Louis Newton-John. I mean, it's a bad film, but I enjoyed it anyway. It's got some good music in it. And... Can't stop the music, the the village people uh, mm. disco thing that basically bankrupted the studio and uh. ended musicals. Now, and again, I love that film; it's hilarious. You know, seeing Glenn Hughes jump up there and do Danny Boy. <laughs> but you know, Apple's like a seen, failed version. Of... But you haven't seen it in a while, right? Not I... in the last year or two, no. Oh, so it's been sooner. Okay, all right. Yeah, can't stop the music. We pull out every so often as a perennial favorite. <laughs> I would say go back to the Apple. And then you can, you, you'll you find yourself reassessing it. Like, hmm, there's something. The Apple, there. I think I thought about three years ago. And around the time that it was reissued or something, mm. I had a DVD or something, and I was watching this. Like, jeez, this film was bad. I had a, it's very discified. There's yeah. a lot of this kind of reworked, futuristic sci fi, Adam and Eve kind of a thing, but I don't know. <laughs> it really is bad. I was always surprised that the lead, though, the guy. Didn't didn't get a career going because he's he's quite magnetic, he's quite good looking, and he can sing. Yeah, you know, well, I mean, I'm sure he could have got a career in Broadway, but they probably just looked at it and said, "What you were in the Apple and laughed at him." <laughs> <laughs> hey, so you want to test this, and we can continue. Definitely. Just close on the image of the real life thing behind Kiss Up the Music, where they had to film some live village people footage doing a concert, and they actually did it in a mall, and they gave us some tickets. You know, so okay, anybody that comes there, you know, basically you can come for free and see the village people, and you'll be in the movie. Right. And they actually had to scrap the footage they got from the audience because all it showed up was a bunch of drag queens in full drag. <laughs> you know, I met true story. <laughs> who did I meet? Uh, he came to Chiller once, the cowboy guy. Oh, uh, Randy Jones, yeah. He's a really nice guy. I saw him on TV recently. Uh, I, I was surprised. I thought he was dead or something. Yeah. There's some guy that interviews uh, musicians from the village, and he was one of them. He interviewed Fred Schneider for some reason, and he interviewed Randy Jones and somebody else. And I was like, okay, I know these people. Let's start watch this silly little interview. But yeah, yeah, he, he looks seems... good. He looks robust. And, exactly. Uh... He seems in good shape. I was surprised. Yeah. And, and and the funny thing was, I said to him, oh, you know, I used to live in East Village. He goes, where? And I gave him the address. He goes, oh, I live right next door. I said, <laughs> to what? And, he's, and he, he lived there until after I moved out. So I'm sure we, we pass each other all the time. Wow. But, yeah, I just thought he was another gay mustache guy in the village. <laughs> <laughs> but you, yet you did recognize uh, Bobby Astor. <laughs> Well, yeah, yeah. Well, Bobby Astor, that was by the Chelsea Hotel. Bobby was walking two big giant dogs who belonged to who? Who did he live with? Oh, Jesus. Wasn't uh, he with? Uh, he was with one of the junkie girls, not not Serena. Um, ooh, and it definitely no, wasn't the cute one, not, not high pitched Lee, the other one that was a half American Indian. Uh, oh, jeez. 
Yeah, but they they were a thing. Yeah, he was he was supposed to be uh, despite his on screen persona. Mm-hmm. He was supposed to be every everybody has good things to say about him. They all they all they all said. I'd heard that he's a really nice guy, and he's always trying to help people out. Always trying to help people out, especially like when they were down and out, or trying to get them cleaned up. Yeah, so. like uh, like when AIDS came along, he was trying to help people out. I you would totally not get that idea, but he, you know, he he's like Jerry Lewis. Look, Jerry Lewis was not the Jerry Lewis we saw on screen, and with Dean, mm-hmm. he was a totally different guy. But that that was a gig. And he, they figured out how to milk that for money. You know that that high pitched nasal thing. Mm-hmm. You know, Bobby Esther, he he raised his voice. He he threw it into a sling a couple of times. He had he developed these ticks and stuff. And you think, wow, he's a creepy Italian or creepy Jewish guy. <laughs> Nobody knew what he really was like. You know. Yep. So. Uh, all right. So We're all over the place today. Wow. Right. <laughs> nice intro. All right. So- We'll give us a test and we'll be right back. Okay. Let me know. Okay.